Radio Mano Papachango. Very quick note I'm just inserting here after I've already recorded this whole thing. Because of um, configuration fuck-up, most of the introduction was recorded on the microphone in my laptop rather than the microphone in my hand. So please don't be alarmed if the first 10 or 15 minutes sounds kind of weird coming out of your speakers or in your ears. It gets better after that. Um, something i got to figure out with the uh, the interface of the the program and the microphone that I've been using. So uh, I'm just throwing this in real quickly at the beginning so no one will be alarmed. Don't touch your dials. Everything's fine on your end. It's just another fuck up by the good people here at Tangentially Speaking. Hope you forgive us and that you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Over and out. I'm sitting inside uh, drinking kombucha. That's right. When in Rome, you know, I've got my kombucha. What is it? It's uh Health Aid Kombucha, a bubbly probiotic tea, ginger lemon, uh-huh, certified in, you know, all these non-GMO, gluten-free, yaddy yaddy. It says it's um, handcrafted. Wow. Handcrafted kombucha. Can't beat that. Uh, let's see. Updates for you. Uh, first of all, this episode is with Josh Fox. I was going to release this last week, but I decided to bump Josh in favor of releasing uh, Dea Schlossberg's episode uh, because she was in jail. As far as I know, she's still in jail. She's been charged with conspiracy and and fucking with government property and all sorts of other shit because she happened to be there filming the people who were shutting off the emergency shutoff valves on the pipelines that are bringing Canadian crude oil into the United States. Now, you can argue that the emergency is the fact that tar sands are being melted down at incredible environmental cost and that the United States is providing a market for those disgustingly dirty energy um, inefficient um, you know, oil reserves. Uh, but in any case, whatever you believe about our energy infrastructure, one thing is clear. The Second Amendment, no, it's not. The First Amendment, Second Amendment says you can shoot people. First Amendment says you can shoot people with a camera without killing them. First Amendment is guarantees freedom of the press, and she is clearly a member of the press. She's a journalist. She's a documentary filmmaker and uh, with several films to her credit, including uh, Josh Fox's most recent film, um, which is called How to... Let go of the world. Shit, man. I hate these long titles. I always, <laughs> I always come to this moment and it's like, Josh, this film is what the fuck is it called? How to let go of the world and love everything that climate can't change or something like that. Look it up. Google this shit. Anyway, it's a good film. It's a really good film. And it sort of follows the same trajectory in many ways that Civilized to Death follows, which is, you know, part one is 
trying to get people to really see just how fucked up the situation is. And then when you're just about hopeless, part two is, but here's the good news. We aren't fucked up as, as an organism, as an animal, human beings are not fucked up. And I think, I think a lot of people misunderstand what I'm saying. In fact, the other day I was uh, doing a podcast with Duncan, which I would encourage you to listen to if you, um, you know, like this sort of conversation, which I guess you do since you're listening to me, uh, check out Duncan Trussell's podcast. He's fantastic. He's hilarious, smart as can be. Anyway, I was over at his place and we, you know, ended up talking about a lot of this stuff. And I think Duncan was resisting some of what I was saying because he was interpreting my perspective as being essentially um, defeatist and saying, you know, that humans are um, naturally these horrible organisms that just fuck everything up. And the thing is, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying humans are in the right circumstances, amazing, wonderful, generous, kind, loving, like all the positive things that Duncan loves, that I love, that you love, those are all part of human nature. The problem is that we find ourselves in social systems that repress those aspects of our nature and that um, encourage and, and nourish and feed the aspects of our, of our nature which are destructive and selfish and isolating and that lead to unhappiness and environmental destruction and to income inequality and all the rest of it. And, uh, and the thing is, it's clear that, yes, we have the capacity to go either way, but our capacity toward kindness and generosity and, uh, and love is so much more uh, deeply embedded in us. It's, it flows so much more freely in us. We need to be taught we need to be trained. We need to be punished. We need to be really forced into these destructive behaviors. We need to be blackmailed into it. Look, you know, very few people would prefer to have a job dumping industrial waste into a river rather than doing something that was meaningful and beautiful. If they could spend their time painting or making sculptures or playing with children or working with animals or, uh, you know, growing food. There's so many things that people would rather do. The reason people do those sorts of jobs is because they have no options. They have no fucking choice. Same reason people, most people go to war. The reason people, you know, you need to be trained to kill. That's what boot camp is. It's one of the most intense training regimens in the world. Why is that necessary? Because people are naturally resistant to shooting a stranger. That's really hard to do. And even if you've been trained to do it and you come from a culture that tells you you're a hero, you, you're from this warrior culture, you're raised to be hard and, and unfeeling and aggressive and follow orders and be a good soldier and yeah, blah, blah, all that bullshit. Even if you believe all that bullshit, it still fucking hurts. It hurts. You still get PTSD. All these guys coming back from war with PTSD, they went through the training, the indoctrination, the fucking brainwashing, and still they come home. And for the rest of their lives, a lot of them, and sometimes their lives don't last long because they can't fucking take it anymore. So one an hour is offing himself because of what he's seen and what he's done. 
uh, yeah, don't tell me that's human nature, that that's our nature to fuck each other over. That's not our nature. It's what we're forced into. So ultimately, as far as talking about Homo sapiens goes, I am hopeful. I think we're a pretty cool animal. I think that we have found ourselves in a situation where the worst parts of us are being cultivated and the best parts of us are being squelched out. But maybe that's changing. So if you're interested in that sort of conversation, I'd encourage you to check out Duncan Trussell Family Hour and the episode I just recorded with him a couple days ago. Um, the other thing I did when I was over at Duncan's is he uh, hooked me up to his HTC Vive, I think it's called, which is like the newest generation virtual reality thing. And uh, I got to say, completely mind blown. Uh, I, I, he hooked me up to his Oculus Rift a year ago. I guess he had one of those. And that honestly, that was just like having a computer strapped to your face. Like, who cares? I, I, I wasn't impressed by it. This thing, this was a whole different ball game. Um, this was like being in another world. It, it was totally mind-blowing. And, you know, if you know me, you know I, I'm resistant to being impressed by these sorts of technologies, because I think ultimately, you know, they, they're they marketed to us as this great innovation, and then you find that they've just robbed you of something, you know, while they've distracted you, flashing this thing in front of your eyes, they've got their hand in your pocket, and they're taking not only your money, but they're taking some essential aspect of your vitality as a human being, and I have no doubt that that's where this will go as well. It's just another step closer to us being disembodied brains sitting on a shelf somewhere being entertained and, you know, I don't know, farmed. We're going to end up like chickens in those fucking cages where you can't even move. But anyway, meanwhile, we get to watch amazing porn. Incredible 3D porn. And um, I mean, the porn, it, he put on the porn and it, it was like embarrassing because I felt like I was in the room with these two women. Like they could see me. It wasn't like Watching porn on a computer, like you're some pervert outside the window looking in, like, ooh, what are they doing? And you're not part of the thing, right? This was like, no, you're in the room with them. It it was fucking strange. And he, he put me, there was some program where like I was up on top of a mountain and there were birds flying down below and this incredible view. And there was like a, like a precipice and... I was stepping close to the precipice and I could hear Duncan laughing. He's like, you should see your body right now. Because literally I was like afraid to, to just step too far and fall over. Like maybe a gust of wind would kick me off. It was really intense. Wow. Anyway, so there's the future. Um, those of you who are into the shrimp parade, I believe there's sort of tentative plans to record one next week. So that could be coming. And if we can't get it together next week, I'm sure we'll get it together eventually now that I'm in the neighborhood. And uh, what else? Uh, I'm in Topanga. I went to the farmer's market last week and I, I was there like 10 seconds and a guy named Adam came up and said, hey, are you Chris? And I was like, yeah. He's like, hey, podcast fan. Look at it. Gave me his card. So Adam, if you're listening, I'll get in touch soon. I've been traveling a lot, but uh, cool. Yeah. Interesting. Topanga. So uh, Adam seems like a really nice guy. And, hey, I feel a lot of gratitude about this. I feel gratitude toward the place I'm living in, 
you've heard the story about that, how my friends sort of decided to make this place available to me. Um, it's a very special place in, in their lives and, and welcoming me into this room I'm sitting in right now. Um, you know, it's not just four walls. There's a lot of love and, and um, a lot of emotion here. So that's a beautiful thing to, to be welcomed into. And um, hey, you know, I don't even have the internet hooked up yet. Um, but there's a neighbor right around here somewhere. I can't see them because, the, you know, like I said, it's sort of in, it's surrounded by forest. But somebody right around here has a Wi-Fi network that they didn't put a password on. It's called Peace. So I've been pirating the Peace Wi-Fi network. Now, I know it's a one in a million chance, but hey, if you live in Topanga Canyon and you have a Wi-Fi network called Peace and you decided not to put a password on it because you thought maybe somebody needs some Wi-Fi and you're just cool and why not let them have some Wi-Fi, thank you. That's really nice of you. So I appreciate the Peace. And I've been thinking about gratitude a lot lately. I read somewhere, maybe Duncan and I were talking about this, or I don't remember what it was, but, um, you know, I've read a lot of this um, happiness literature, the new science of, you know, how happiness, how to get happy and all that. And I think it's another one of these things in life that we've got backwards, where people say, you know, oh, you got to do this to be happy. You got to do that to be happy. You got to, um, you know, you got to have this amount of money. You got to have a certain number of friends. You got to live in the countryside. You got to grow your own food. You got to be a vegetarian. You got to be paleo. You got to work out. You got to, you know, take cold baths, hot baths. Uh, but I think we sort of get stuff backwards because I think that the the point is everyone can look in their lives and find something that pisses them off, that makes them unhappy, that makes them tired, that makes them feel drained, that feels unfair. But everyone can also look in their lives and find things that make them feel the opposite of that, that make them feel gratitude. And the only choice we have is what we pay attention to. Because all that shit's coming at us all the time. So... The only option we really have is where do we direct our attention? And, you know, I know I'm not saying anything original here. Buddhists have been saying this for thousands of years, but I'm constantly reminded of the truth of it. I just got off the phone with a very close friend of mine who lives in Spain, who's married to a lovely, lovely man who was diagnosed with um, multiple sclerosis a few years ago, and it's not going well. It's really, really fucked. She's much younger than me. She has every reason to feel like she's got her whole life ahead of her. She's got a couple little kids. And, you know, she and this guy got together and, and the future looked incredibly bright. Everything was great. They had two kids and, and they had money. They had jobs. And then suddenly the whole fucking world fell apart. And now she's got two little kids um, making a third of the money she was making before the old Spanish economic collapse hit them hard. He can't work at all. He's in and out of the hospital, can hardly walk. It's just a fucking nightmare. But, you know, for the first five minutes of the conversation, she was in tears. And then the rest of the conversation, she was laughing 
and she was talking about how great her kids are and how much she loves living in this place by the beach and go walk on the beach and how these people, she's got all these friends because people have seen what she was going through and they sort of really made an effort to help her out and invite her to parties and someone will watch the kids so she can take off for the day and just focusing on all the good things that are happening in her life. And I'm not saying she's ignoring the bad things. She's not. But she's choosing to be, to feel grateful. And I think that's what leads to happiness, not vice versa. We don't feel grateful because we're happy. We feel happy because we're grateful. Anyway, God, I hate listening to myself when I say these cliche bullshit things, but it's true. <clears throat> so... There you go. Maybe if we keep repeating it again and again and again, eventually it sinks in, right? Um, okay, so bad news. Um, those of you who have been following the case of Justin Alexander, apparently um, this, one of the search parties back in the valley above Manali, um, they found his flute and his um, blanket, uh, which was probably just about all he had with him. So the people who are in India believe that he's probably dead. And um, the, the Baba he was supposedly with and the porter are both in police custody. Um, and foul play is suspected, as they say. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if they pushed him. It was near a waterfall, which is fitting. I know Justin... Spent a lot of time near waterfalls as much as he could. And um, yeah, I don't know. I hope they'll send back photos of the waterfall and where they found his stuff. And uh, so we're sort of waiting for that, waiting to see if his body's been found, um, you know, waiting for details. But from the people who are on the ground in India, the last update that they sent was um, sad and, and sort of resigned to the fact that... Um, at this point, they're looking for his body rather than looking for him. So, yeah, it's hard to find anything to be grateful for in all that. Um, you know, I, I was talking with a friend, a mutual friend uh, of Justin's and mine, and and uh, right after this news came in, and Justin had a an eagle tattooed across his chest and um, from shoulder to shoulder, the wings spread out. I remember being with him in Thailand just this, this winter. Um, I was with him for six weeks or so and we rented motorcycles and we rode up to Pai from Chiang Mai. And I remember we were coming back down and he was in the motorcycle up in front of us and we're cruising along this remote rode through the Thai countryside and um, we were going probably 40 miles an hour or something. And I saw him sort of moving around on the motorcycle. He was very comfortable on motorcycles, too comfortable for my taste, but he was sort of moving around and I saw that he had put his feet behind his ass up on the seat in sort of a yoga position. And then he let go of the handlebars and spread his arms. And I was just cruising down this highway with his arms spread open like he was flying. 
And at the time I thought, fuck, dude, what are you doing, man? I mean, I've, I've ridden motorcycles a lot, but I would never do that. Um, you know, and, and I was like, oh, shit, if he goes down, I'm right behind him. So I slowed down to, you know, give me some some swerving space if, if something happened, if one of his feet slipped, his balance would go and all this. And I had this mixture of feelings that were like, you know, um, fear, concern for him, um, kind of like, I don't know, disdain is too hard a word, but like, you know, dude, don't do that. What are you doing? Unnecessary risk. Don't do that. But I have to admit there was a bit of admiration mixed in there as well. You know, when you see someone jump from a cliff into a lake and you say, yeah, I would never do that, but fuck, that must be fun. There was some of that. I wonder what it's like to be that guy who does that. And, you know, I've often thought we talk about how we'd like to die. And I've often thought I'd like to die falling. I'd like to die falling from a, a very high cliff or from an airplane or whatever, where I could, where I was flying through the air because I imagine, and I don't know if it's true, but I like to imagine that at the point where I knew it was over, where there was nothing to grab onto, no point in panicking, where, you know, all that stuff was done. And now it was just a few seconds. I like to imagine that I would have the balls to turn and spread my wings. I don't know if I'll have the balls to do that, but I have no doubt that Justin would and probably did. All right. This is the second time that my Hindenburg recording software has fucked me over. I assuming my voice sounds incredibly better, or at least uh, the recording quality is much better now than it was a minute ago. For some reason, when I plug in this Yeti microphone, it comes up and it says, okay, we'll use this as the input. And I say, okay, click on okay. And then I record a 22 minute intro and I listen to it and it's been recorded by the microphone in the fucking laptop. So I'm going to write to Hindenburg and see what the fuck is up with that. Uh, sorry about that. I, I'm not going to record it all over again. I mean, that was from the heart. So, you know, I'm not going to try to fake that. Um, but I am going to stop right here and see how this sounds. Yes, as suspected, it's now recording through the microphone I've been holding in my hand this whole time. Sorry about that. Um, okay, what was I going to say to you? Okay, this next song, I'm going to play a song that sort of fits into all this, this, this gratitude and all that. Uh, kind of a funny situation. A guy named William Slavin wrote to me, and um, he said he was listening to the recent Toma episode, and I was telling that story about listening to Midnight Oil and uh, how it was like this incredibly, uh, I was really high. And if you haven't listened to it, it's the story. It took place in India and I was high. And I listened to this Midnight Oil cassette and it was all this like super experimental music and all that. Anyway, he was listening to the story and um, he paused it just before I ended the story 
And then he said, uh, so while at work, I listened to about six Midnight Oil albums trying to figure out what all this creativity you were talking about was. And he listened to them over and over again. And of course, he didn't hear the end of the story where I explained that, you know, how the music was uh, distorted. And I won't ruin the story for you if you haven't listened to it yet, but um, it's worth listening to. Uh, anyway, so he he wrote to me and he's got um, some friends who play, uh, let's see, from Santa Cruz. They lost their sax player, Scott uh, Shipper, to cancer, which led them to starting a nonprofit called Unify to Thrive that raises cancer awareness and offers support groups for young adults. And he confirmed that uh, I have their blessing to share this song. It's a really nice song. Um, so if you enjoy this and you want to hear more of their music, go to unifytothrive.org and you'll hear all about them and, uh, and all about the story, Scott, and so on. The song is called So Beautiful.
Everybody just a hustling for some money Times are tougher than they've ever been before But I'm not stopping for anybody People looking at me funny And it's funny cause it makes me want it more and more I severed every single tie Except my work and my music Sometimes it gets confusing And I feel like I'm losing it But then I remember it's my path And I chose it, did some math And exposed it, now everybody knows it Started out just a seed and grew into a tree But so deep you can't imagine going down that many feet Now imagine the world without people in the street A world without hate, a world full of peace A world with no disease, no war, no casualties I know that this is possible if we all just believe What's possible, anything is possible to achieve In your life and in your mind if you seek Receiving in time, you will retrieve what's been lost for so long. Capture a moment, take it home, and then write a song. No, you're right from wrong. No, you're good from bad. Know that all good things will happen if we just stay positive, and it starts with this. Ooh, so Oh, yeah. They're right. It all starts with noticing how beautiful it is. Once you notice that, the rest just sort of falls into place, I guess. That song makes a lot of sense for this episode because Josh Fox is probably, of all the people I've met in my life, he's the guy who is most committed to recognizing the beauty and defending it. Um, He's an extraordinary guy, and I'm so happy to consider him a friend and and to know that he considers me a friend at this point because he's a serious guy. He um, has been nominated for an Oscar for his, I think it was his first documentary called Gasland. Um, I really encourage you to go out and see that. And then he did Gasland too, and now he's done this, uh, this recent film, How to Let Go of the World. You know, he's right in the mix. He's good at so many different things, and he's so fucking good at them. He's an amazing banjo player. In fact, I've got a song he sent me, uh, and a piece of music he sent me of him playing. Um, he's an amazing filmmaker, a great photographer, an incredible cook. Holy shit, can that guy cook. A playwright, an actor. I'm. A, he's just like whatever. He's good at it all, really good at it all. And he's chill, cool, relaxed, funny, humble, just a generous, decent, wonderful guy. Um, You know, I don't know if he's going to listen to this, but I don't want to embarrass him by saying any more. But I will say that there's a reason that the environmental issues are so fucking urgent right now. Mother Earth is pregnant for the third time. For y'all have knocked her up. I have tasted the maggots in the mind of the universe. I was not offended. For I knew I had to rise above it all. Or drown in my own shit. Yeah, Josh gets that. 
I think Josh will resonate with that message. By the way, that's Funkadelic. That's the intro to a song called Maggot Brain, which I would highly recommend you check out. What Josh has managed to do and what I'm aspiring to do is to stay hopeful in the midst of all the shit coming down. He plays uh, banjo, as I said. He's played with Pete Seeger, one of the great folk singers of American history. Um, I'm not sure if it was Pete Singer or someone else who sang If I Had a Hammer, I'd Hammer in the Morning. If you don't know that song, it's a classic. And it's a it's a song about hope. I'd, I'd hammer out justice. I'd hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land, is what it says. Sometimes I descend into anger, and it's hard to hold on, hold on to the hope. Here's a song that exemplifies that by a Canadian named Bruce Coburn. It's called... If I had a rocket launcher, and it's a different look at the uh, the if I had a hammer approach to injustice. Here comes the helicopter. Second time today Everybody scatters And hopes it goes away How many kids they've murdered Only God can say If I had a rocket launcher Launcher. If I had a rocket launcher, I'd make somebody pay. I don't believe in guarded borders, and I don't believe in hate. I don't believe. Generals or their stinking torture states. And when I talk with the survivors of things too sickening to relate, if I had a rocket launcher, if I had a rocket launcher.
hears every voice At least I've got to try Every time I think about it Well, after this weekend, who? Yeah, who would? An alcohol-scarred vocal cords. This is a really interesting book. Did you ever read this book? Uh, I don't think. I would I wonder have. what your take would be on this book. I don't think I have. An it's insight, a fascinating a book. General theory of love: an insightful look at the science of human emotions. Yeah, yeah. Just because we're sitting here at my table, and I know we're going to so talk about many things. Interesting books I want to read, man. But this one could be right. If, if, if I think. Uh, in terms of your work, like in my ballywick, yeah, you're your, talking about your, my ballywick, in your wheelhouse, in my wheelhouse, <laughs> down my dirty, dirty alley. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting here with Josh Fox, the one and only Josh Fox, uh, a true Renaissance man. There, there are a few. You know, it's been a long time since the Renaissance, and so you don't get a lot of Renaissance dudes. I don't know if you're medieval as well or just renaissance, but so what are you? You're a writer, you're a playwright, you're a director, you're the star of many of your films, your documentaries, you're um, uh, a dancer, you're a banjo player, you're a drummer, you're a guitarist, you are a kick-ass chef, which I have seen, or cook, which I've seen in action over the last few days, where Josh goes into the kitchen and 20 minutes later, food for 30 people comes out that is <laughs> fucking delectable. There's a lot of preparation involved with that. You know, oh, there is people chopping vegetables. No, 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 no. What you buy ahead of time is it doesn't it doesn't happen in twenty minutes. Well, what I saw was twenty. I saw <laughs> you walk into the kitchen. I have a beer, and then there's food for twenty people. <laughs> and that's well, I do really. You know, the, I think the bottom line is I really enjoy having a lot of people around. Right. And that's a lot of people working on a play, or right. a lot of people working on a film. Or if I'm not in the middle of a play or a film where there's lots of people around, it's time for to have like these weekend parties or dinner parties. Right. Because there's something in me that not only craves community, but deeply believes in it as a way of life. Right. And that we are so isolated from each other in, in our normal lives. Right. And so I love to create that experience. And I remember what you told me. We just, just to explain, right? It was Labor Day weekend. We were in Pennsylvania in Milanville at my house. If you've seen Gasland or Gasland Part Two or How to Let Go of the World and Love All Things, yeah. Climate Can't Change, it's those woods that we protected from fracking. And um, so we're there, and I invite uh, 200, 300 people 
and usually a fraction of them show up depending on how many invites I actually remember to send out and so on. So some, it's anywhere between 25 and 50 people will show up for any portion, portion of the week. I didn't know that the, the pool was that big. It's so it's like, but you so know, a lot of them like happen. live in LA or live in San right. Francisco. So, so like so me, it's, like, it's rare you, that I'm yeah, make it. But you know, there you it is. Up from, yeah. from Barcelona. Yeah. Um, so yeah, every once in a while, there's usually some, Fiona came from Vancouver. Right. You know? right. Um, so you know, there's this sense that we are are, uh, uh, nobody knows what's going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. So I have to prepare. I have to buy a lot of food in advance and booze, um, and encourage people to bring things. And uh, you know, but 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 nobody's going to bring the whole meal. I mean, obviously, sure. I have meals planned for the three or four days, and so the crowd will swell it around Saturday night. Is about maybe there's more than end up there Monday morning or Tuesday right. morning or whatever right. it is. So we've done now Labor Day, um, uh, Thanksgiving. New Year's Eve, and then uh, July 4th, and then this year again, Labor Day. So we've done five of these weekends. When I say we, I mean, um, you know, me and my girlfriend and the people in my company that sort of help arrange these things. Right. That, uh, um, and, you know, it's it's every single time something exceptional and amazing it happened. And I remember you came up to me in the kitchen and you were like, if I were running this, it would completely fall apart in one day. You know, I could never keep it together. But the truth is that I'm not running anything. Right. I'm just cooking. Right. The rest of it is just permission for people to be a community and let per permission, right. it, you know, is this kind of feeling that gets that gets passed on, like you know, one person to another. It happens very, very quickly, and then you see this natural human arrangement of community. Happen. Right. You create you create a culture, or you allow a culture to create itself, I guess, to arise spontaneously. Which is spectacular. Yeah. And yeah. you know, there are habits that some people might have that you would find annoying after a right. day. Right. But generally speaking, and that's true of a lot of different because they're everybody's their character. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's people. Yeah. There's people from New York. There's people right. from you know all over the country there's people sometimes from other other countries and you know you, you you might somebody might grate on you but everyone is actually their best version of themselves somehow because that generosity it's like what you talk about in, in in your book you know that if you were just to feed your own kids in a tribe of 150 people you would be ostracized because right. you would be selfish right and that selfishness is impossible in a, a setting like this one yeah you know i can't tell you how many people yeah. How many times people are like, can I help with this? Can I help with that? Can yeah. I help with something else? Yeah. Can I help with this? You know, and I'm always like, no, because I, I, I'm very bad at delegating authority. Right. <laughs> I just hope that yeah. it happens on its own. Yeah, I, I felt that way. I wanted to help, but I, I felt like I'm just getting in the way if I'm in the kitchen. You know, <laughs> like there's shit going on here, and I'm just like, I'm just coagulating it's this. M it's my mental note to, to to be better at that for next time. So. No, I think you're I think you're good at it. I mean that that energy's clear. And there were some people who obviously had done that with you before. And yeah. They knew how. They knew, like they, they knew they what knew you needed, drill. and they were there. And like, okay, I'm I'm just gonna grab a beer. Yeah. And Maria, like Lee's sister. Uh, we, we arrived that one day to come back to the house from our long walk through the nature and all of a sudden the table was already set. Yeah. And there's flowers Flowers the and candles and, and was, floating. Oh, yeah, it was beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Well, yeah, that table itself. Yeah. I arrived yeah. home from the D Democratic National Convention yeah. and boom, somebody had built this table that seats 12 people yeah. and they had painted the flowers yeah. of the of the, the local, local yeah. flowers that they had picked. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So that table changed everything. Yeah, yeah. People sitting around the table, you already feel like, oh, this is some solid place. Do you remember, do you read The New Yorker? Sometimes. Yeah, there was an article, I don't know how long ago, but it was written by Malcolm Gladwell, and it's called, I think it was called, um, 
like five degrees of Lois Weinberg or something like that. And it's about this woman in Chicago. You know, it's one of these Malcolm Gladwell things that he does really well, where there's this woman in Chicago who no one's ever heard of. But without her, this famous, now famous scientist wouldn't have met this millionaire who funded his research that changed, you know, Silicon Valley. Or, you know, this uh, writer wouldn't have met this Mm -hmm. producer who ended up making these films we've all heard of. Mm -hmm. And she just had these parties at her house. Mm -hmm. And she's this little old lady who just knew a lot of really interesting people. And she just had a weekly dinner at her house where people would come and stuff would happen, Mm -hmm. you know. It would be the flint and the, what was it, flint and steel, you know, just sparks would just fly. And, uh, you know, that's that's what the article's about, how you you create a space and you bring in interesting people and stuff starts to happen, you know, whether it's love and families or movies or whatever it is. There have definitely been babies born out of the strange parties and things. I think there was definitely some people were were attempting that. (laughs) I I think there were people going through the motions in the bushes. They may succeed. (laughs) No, but I'm just saying that that not just uh, actual babies, but a lot of creative babies as well. That's the point. And this is the truth behind all the projects that I make, which is these documentaries involve 50 subjects, 50 interview subjects. When I made plays, a lot of people don't know about my history as a theater director. In New York City, we're here in Brooklyn at the Wow House. This is a place that I've had for 16 years. Is Wow House a play on Bauhaus? Kind of. Yeah. yeah. It's just as ugly and just as important. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and yeah. uh, you know, it's, it, my company is called International Wow Company, and right. that started in Thailand in 1996. Right. Uh, when I was an actor with a company that shall remain nameless from America, that was uh, that brought me as an actor to an international uh, dance and theater festival in Chiang Mai, Thailand, as a collaborative seven-week festival. So we were the only Americans. There was Thai actors, there was Indonesians, several different Indonesian dance companies, Japanese um, companies, Taiwanese actors, uh, Germans, French. It was like a mini international festival of just all the friends of this other guy named Manuel Lutkenhorst, mm. who was a he was a director. He was a director. He actually was the original designer for Studio Fifty Four. Oh, really? And then he was sent across Asia by Alan Stewart from Mama because he gotten himself in too much trouble in New York and too much had coke. babies and no doubt. that was uh, you know things like this had happened. I don't I don't know the whole story. Yeah. But he made the same play in ten different countries. Um, over a period of 10 years and then invited all those people to a festival. We were the babies. We were like, I was like, I think it was 22 or 23. Right. And um, I arrived there and then summarily quit the American company because they were like really, they were like really weirdly clueless about culture. They were like offending the Thai people. They were like going out drunk driving on their motorcycles in the middle of the night and making fun of Thai culture. And I just, I, just, I said, fuck this, I quit. But I was also teaching the Thai grad students Viewpoints and Suzuki, which are two, you know, physical theater techniques that are very popular in New York, or very, very popular in the 90s, from my teacher, Anna Bogart, and they wanted to continue that work. So I said, well, let's just hang out and make a play. Um, and so first I went to Indonesia for a couple of months, which is a whole life in and of itself, and right. came back to Thailand, started the company. Um, do you want to close that window? Because that... Uh, yeah. No, I what, what it's is almost, it? It's the, it's the pasta makers downstairs that made your ravioli. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, um, right. You said, yeah. yeah. They're made right. right oh, right. Uh, anyway, so, you know, I, I uh, the first play that we made in Thailand was called Wow, because Wow was kind of how we felt. 
like that international wow is what happens when you get off the plane and you just yeah. see this new landscape for the very first time and you're like, where the fuck am I? Yeah, especially Thailand. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, and getting off the, in, in Bangkok, especially yeah. at the old airport, yeah. where there was this t life, like right in the streets yeah. there, like everywhere you look. Oh, and just the, the air, the heaviness of the air and the, and the smells. Smells, all the yeah. weird smells. There's, yeah. there's like this very, very present sweetness. Yeah. At the same time, there's this very, very present sewage. Yeah. So this very and burning of things, burning yeah. of bodies. I love. Um, it's the, like I love amazing. Thailand so much. It's my man. favorite. Yeah. Well, this was also a, just an excuse to stay in Thailand longer. Uh, this right. is 1996, right? right? 20 years ago now, basically. Yeah. Um, our anniversary, 23rd of July 12th, 1996. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I worked with this group of Thai actors. We worked for two months on a play. They were all 21. I was. And the plays in English. It was in Thai. It was in Thai. Yeah. Oh wow. Oh, so, that's right. You had a translator. Well, I we a lot of the actors. Some of the ha about half the company, which was eight actors at the time, spoke English. Uh -huh. So the other half didn't. Right. So I would go to the library in Chiang Mai, and I there were all these books where there was side by side lines from drama or from other books. I had all these like Tennessee Williams plays and you could see the line was corresponding with another right. line. And then there was like a, a, the you know Taoist books and Zen books and all this stuff. And I would have them either translate. So I, was, I wasn't writing as much as I was doing like pastiche, kind of like the dramatic equivalent of like the Chicago, uh, Picasso collages. And here's three lines here and here's three lines there and here's four lines here. Oh, Somehow right. we would make a scene. Right. And what was interesting about it was that I would completely forget what lines I had assigned to the actors. <laughs> but if they were good, uh -huh. if they were acting well, I totally got it. And it uh -huh. revamped all my ideas about language and uh -huh. theater and communication. Wow. Interesting. And that, that, that theater is, you know, we have a tuning fork and one on stage and you have a tuning fork in the audience. If you hit one of them, the other one will start resonating on the same frequency. Right. So it just, re it was, I found it fascinating. Hmm. So I started to work on all these new plays. Uh, with this Thai company, with, then with Indonesians, and then I integrated. Then we came back to New York, and we would, we would rehearse. And we were 20. We had no money. We had no grants. We had no pay. We had no, we had no ability to raise money. But what we did have the ability to do was exploit the exchange rate. So we could raise, let's say, $3,000 working for three months in New York. Right. You buy your plane ticket to Thailand. That's 800 bucks. Right. So then you have, like, between 1000 and $2,000. You can live in Thailand for six months at, on 96 for, for $2,000. Right. You can live in Thailand for, now yeah. for, for six months on $2,000. Yeah. It's still $2 a day to rent a room and $1 a day to rent a bike. And right. if you just play your, you're smart about it, $1 a day to yeah. eat. You know, um, so well, we were li yeah, yeah. food is amazing. Well, so we were liberated from the grind of New York, right. uh, which is I'm going to have to be a waiter or I'm going to pay back my graduate school or I'm going to do all that stuff. You know, there were enough actors who were willing to say, you know what, I'm going to go on this crazy adventure that we developed this work um, that was an international exchange project. Right. And it was about culture and people and, and the sameness in people and the differences in culture. And what were the Thai actors' instincts? And what were the American actors' instincts? And yeah. what, what about the Germans and the French? And what, the Indonesians, they have so much fire. Where does this come from? You know, and we would do these massive plays with 20, 30 actors, long plays, cycle plays, three hours, four hours. Um, 
where the actors, we kind of reversed the Stanislavski system. We made the character out of the actor's story. So explain what the Stanislavski system is. Stanislavski system is like, okay, you read this character in a book, and then you go live their life. Right, the method actors. The method actors. Right. You, you, if, you know, if they have piercings, you get piercings. If they know how to play the piano, you crash course in the piano. If right. they only eat tuna fish, you only eat tuna fish for right. six weeks. You become that person. Right. The other way around, we would make the actor's life their personal experience and their politics, epic. So for example, you know, um, there were two, there was a story in that very first play called, uh, I think it was called Koptan Koptan. I'm not remembering the tie, but it means red card, black card. And in, in famously at the time, it, the time military, you go in, for, every, every male goes in when they're 18, and when they draw, they draw cards from a deck. If you draw a black card, see you later, goodbye. If you draw a red card, in the military for two years. What? Yep. So wow. that's how it works. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's tough. So the, this is all about the anxiety. The, the story became well, about it's, the it's anxiety. It's more fair than our system, though, isn't it? If you're poor, you it go to the military. If, well, you, if you can do something else, I'm you sure don't. that shit works in Thailand, too. That works all over yeah. the world. Rich yeah. people get out of everything. Yeah. But, um, except death. But, you know, uh, so the story that we built was a true story of this person's friend who had drawn the red card and committed suicide because he was gay. Uh, and he was afraid that he would be tortured in the military. Right. And so we made that as a play. Now obviously it wasn't putting the person's life on stage, but it was making that person's life an epic new kind of character. Right. So that's what we did. And there, we, we continue to do that forever. So a actors coming here to work I was so upset by the sort of dictatorial director in the avant-garde that it would tell you, stand in this place, do what you want to do, and do what exactly what I want you to do, and you have no creativity in this process, you're just a vessel. I wanted to make a vehicle for actors to express themselves better, to collaborate with each other, to write plays mutually. So that's what we did. We, we created 30, 30 plays. And isn't in, on some level, isn't that responding to the nature of actors? Aren't actors generally trying to work out Issues. I mean, is that all the creative sort of person? people have a burning problem of some kind? Do you think so? I do. You th do you think there are healthy creative people? Healthy, well, balanced. My my shrink always just say the artists are just healthy psychotics, because they can't deal with the world as it is, and they have to impact it in some kind of other way. And, and that's imagine their way living of in an imagined world. It. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think. As an artist, you go through various phases. I started going to the theater when I was 11 years old. I know why I went into theater. Why? Because my home life was a disaster. Because my parents were in a very violent, abusive, incredibly upsetting divorce that went on for eight years, oh. which almost which bankrupted the whole family, which put um, an enormous amount of trauma into the sort of genetics of my me and my brother's sister's upbringing. How old were you when that started? It started when I was like eight. So eight to 16, I mean that's. So that's my brother was five. Super rough, yeah. My sister was younger. Younger. They actually didn't move out until I was 10. Right. So there was two years of throwing things and violent fights and suicide attempts and real stuff like that. And I don't, I have no, no disrespect to my parents. I love my parents. Yeah. I love them both. They're very amazing individuals. But this period of time, they were completely reckless and out of control. And, and did you? And my cousins were like, 
I didn't. My cousins who, who lived through it with us, like, sort of saw what was happening. They were like, "We don't. We didn't believe either any of you were actually going to turn out to be normal human beings." Right. We thought that you were all going to be completely psychologically crippled in some way because it was so weird and nasty. And as the oldest sibling, I imagine you probably felt some sort of protectiveness toward your the, the younger one. For sure. Yeah. But I don't think I exhibited that very well. Yeah. I think I felt it, but I think I didn't know what to do. And I, my my route was mostly escape. So right. I made. I made tons of theater. I was never off the stage. Did you have imaginary friends and stuff? Or like no, I had friends, real friends. <laughs> <laughs> Them too, of course. No, but I mean, I, I, I went from being an incredibly introverted, shy kid mm. who didn't ever do his homework to being top of my class. And this was in Pennsylvania? No, in the city. Oh, that you're point. in the city. In, okay. the, in the city by that point, we were here. and. Um, uh, so you got top of my class. You got serious about. So it's interesting. Well, first, of, no, actually, I shouldn't say that. Because at first, I was in public school in New York City. I went to PS6. And I went to Wagner, and Wagner, I had detention every day because I tried to set, set fire to the school. I was a metalhead. Like yeah. I was, like I was seeing like Motley Crue and and like Exciter, Merciful How Fate. How old are you at this I point? I was like 12. 12. 11. Right. I was smoking right. pot. Right. When I was 12. Bought on the streets of New York City. So what? Other so okay, no you're, you're, you're acting out against this craziness at and, home. And then I ended what up. What I, I don't really know. I ended up getting a better school, uh, where there community. wasn't violence all around me. My public school is seventh grade. It was a thousand seventh graders, eight hundred eighth graders, and two hundred ninth graders. Right. So that was the rate of attrition, right? Right. And it was there was a police precinct on the first floor. Um, fights every single day. I got into a fight every day. Really? Uh, pretty much. I have three broken fingers on this hand. Aggressor or I'm defender? Dependent. Who knows? I mean, I, I was shorter than everybody, right. so anything that anyone would say to me would set me off. Yeah. Um, clearly still a fighter in different <laughs> ways. But, you know, like, honestly, yeah. um, those were incredibly wild days in New York City, too. Yeah. There were no rules, you know? Yeah. And... Um, I mean, it was a very different city. You could get mugged on any corner. We're talking, what, the 80s, 70s? 84, How old are you? Okay, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I lived in the city in those days. That's when I was here. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I left in the 90s. Crazy shit. When I graduated. Early AIDS days, a lot of I was know, actually sadness. in ACT UP. I went to ACT UP meetings yeah. as a 17-year-old. Really? As a 16-year-old, actually. Yeah. And I was the only straight 16-year-old at, at ACT UP. Right. <laughs> I got hit on a lot. Um, yeah. But I loved it there because there was this sense of... Us as a community fighting back. Yeah. And then, you know, you we had every Keith Herring t-shirt and pin. Yeah. We used to stick those silence equals death stickers. As high school students, you, you just stick them everywhere, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, and it was this sense that we are fighting back. We hated Ronald Reagan. So is that um, your first political engagement, you think? I was political from before that. Really? I, um, I think the first real moment of being politicized, I think it was in my genetics, because my parents were like, hippies and you know like we had my mother's a big activist she would talk about these things so you pick that up by osmosis you know what I mean yeah my mother never taught me how to cook right but I know she taught me how to cook right. you know what I mean right sure yeah. <laughs> um, but like at the very first moment I remember was in 1985 it was a huge anti-apartheid march that apartheid divestment campaign mm. educated me I was 12 years old it was in May or June and we learned about you know Nelson Mandela. We learned that all these companies had invested in South Africa. And there was a huge march. I don't know if you remember this, but it was in New York City. It ended in Central Park, but it marched all around. 
Yeah. And at Central Park there was speakers, and there was a rally, and there were bands, and there was paraphernalia everywhere, you know, red, black, did, and did green. Did Peter Gabriel play? Maybe. Remember I don't remember Biko? who played, actually. He was, actually. like, really into that. Biko was yeah. a huge... I actually saw Peter Gabriel on the So Tour uh-huh. at Madison Square Garden. Oh, man. In 1984. Amazing. And, or 85. Great or 86. Record. One of those. And I remember he closed with Biko. Yeah. He closed every yeah, show And everyone Biko. was fucking crying, I'm singing. sure. That's a, such a beautiful song. Unreal. And I remember people singing it in the stairwell walking out of Madison Square Garden, yeah. and they still couldn't stop singing it. Yeah. But anyway, so I went to that 1985 apartheid rally and uh, anti-apartheid rally. And I had taken it on my own to go to the copy shop. And I had one flyer that somebody had given me that had a list of 300, they were microscopic font. It was like seven, five, four point font. <laughs> four point font, like you had to read it with a magnifying yeah, yeah. All the companies that were invested in South Africa. Right. And if you had this list on you, you wouldn't buy that material. Right. So Coca-Cola, McDonald's, right. and then on down. So I, I went to the store and I, Xeroxed a hundred of them myself because right. I wanted to pass this information on. Right. And um, I, uh, this was my contribution because I was going to stop ever going to McDonald's. I was never going to buy another Coca Cola until they divested from South Africa. Yeah. And um, we were, our little contingent from my school uh, was going to the march. And I was straggling, because I was talking to, I believe her name was Alyssa Malinovich. She was really cute. <laughs> if, if you're out there, Alyssa Malinovich, and you hear this, that's what was going on. And I was straggling. You know, the two of it. us were really like slow yeah. walking. And, and the whole high school, I was in the eighth grade. The high school was all the way up there. Yeah. And Fred Daly, the English teacher, who was a great teacher, he looked at us, and he goes, come on. You have to run fast if you want to smash apartheid. <laughs> and you know, we like we're like shit, and we just ran to catch up with them, you know. Yeah. But it was this. I think about that all the time. Really, that moment. Yeah, you I think about run that fast. moment all the time when we were making Gasland. This is we found the information. It's a race right. to get it out. Right. You know. You, you, you know you want to intersect this political moment, run to catch that wave. You have no time to waste. Yeah. And yeah. so that's this fire. It's been with me since that day. Like, he said this, and I was like, you, it was like getting a Zen master, like, pow. Wow. You know, and then all of a sudden, you realize, like, oh, no, you have to run to catch this. This isn't coming to you. Right. And that's how I think about political involvement now, hmm. or to this day. Yeah, I was in um, in Mozambique when uh, Mandela died, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I know some of the people that I know there through my wife who grew up there uh, know him, knew him, and like you know, it, it's it's like what a historical figure, what an amazing, yeah. beautiful human being, you know. It's it's well, I saw so him at Yankee rare. Stadium. Oh, yeah. In '90, yeah, it was been interesting because the, I entered this school called Columbia Prep, which was a tiny little socialist high school on the Upper West Side, which changed my whole life. And right. the teachers that I had there completely changed my whole idea of learning and everything. But it was a bookend, you know, like in eighth grade when I went in there, the apartheid rally, and then the last thing I did with my uh, t- uh, history teacher and my mentor Joel Dorfler, who's a genius, amazing teacher, and anyone who's ever the thousands of his students will tell you that. Um, uh, 
we went to see Nelson Mandela at right. Yankee Stadium. Right. And he had been released. Fuck. Tracy Chapman opened. Oh, really? Yeah. I think Harry Belafonte spoke. Uh -huh. It was wild. And yeah. we were in the bleachers. Like, we were way yeah. up there. He yeah. sold out Yankee Stadium yeah. just to hear him talk. Yeah. That was a fantastic moment. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and the divestment campaign, we ended up mirroring in the climate movement. We right. made a film called Divest. It's the, it's the tour of the, uh, the Do the Math. It's the live concert film of the Do the Math tour. Right. I'll give you a copy. There's not, it just came out and it kind of came out concurrently with the bigger film, right. How to Let Go of the World, so we haven't pushed it enough, but it's, it's out there. It's, a, it's, a, it's really kind of interesting. Bill right. McKibben is in a Naomi Klein. Ira Glass makes a cameo in which he does like sleight of hand magic tricks. Oh, really? Never translate <laughs> that on the radio, but he's a master of the, of the vanishing red ball. Ira Glass, he, he's, yeah. uh, his mother is a, a, a sex therapist. So is mine. I know. That's why I mentioned it. <laughs> and you just—we were just watching that cut of you sitting at the desk with the microphone underwater. Right. It reminded me of some of the sets they used in. Did you ever see the This American oh, Life no, TV I work? I never did. I never. Saw it's great. They they set a desk like you know in the middle of some you know field in Idaho with the mountains in the distance, and he's just right. sitting there at a desk with a microphone. Fabulous. You know, doing the intro. It's, it's I cool. I didn't never see that, yeah. but that's cool. Like I mean, I think that it takes so little to. New York, ladies and gentlemen. There it is. There it is. That's a, that was a big police the emergency. The big city. Um, I believe it. So, yeah, no, it, it, my, my teacher, Ann Bogart, also this unbelievable uh, drama and director, uh, she, I, I studied with her at Columbia University as an undergrad. So you went, okay, you went to Oberlin for, for a couple of years. years. You got sick years. of Ohio. Was that Well, the yeah, I couldn't stand the weather. Right. I yeah. mean, it was Winters just gray. Yeah. yeah, I need the sun. Yeah, I have to have the sun. Like it's a, a, October till May, sun never came out. Right, and I felt like I was going to shoot myself. Right, like, I couldn't handle it. So then you came back and no, went actually, to I went to Chicago oh. for a year, <laughs> um, which in hindsight, well, it was actually a great, great for great theater, for right? I mean, I was nonstop. I did work in every. I worked in uh, Steppenwolf. Yeah. Uh, that was Which my goal. I wanted company. to. Steppenwolf yeah. was the theater company of John Malkovich and right. Jack Kinney and Gary right. Sinise, and they were my heroes. Right. I had seen Grapes of Wrath on Broadway. My mom got me tickets for my graduation. Was Malkovich in that? Malkovich? No, Malkovich was not in it, but Terry Kinney was in it and Gary Sinise was in it. Yeah. Um, and it was, and Jim True, uh, great actors. Um, and it was so spectacular. My mom got me tickets for my. For graduation, um, and uh, I lost my mind. I thought this is the greatest theater piece I've ever seen. It's four hours long. It's twenty-five person ensemble. They're acting out Steinbeck. It really worked. Jack, did, Frank you, did you have trouble with uh, maintaining attention for four hours? You sound yeah. like you were all over the place. And I know that like your mind is super active. Once I lock in, I'm there. You're there. You can. Focus. I, if I get into editing and I'm there, I'll go for twelve hours straight. Right. Or more. Were you Were you into music at this point already? Yeah, like well, as a kid? my, um, I was in, yeah, well, I learned how to, I think I learned how to play the guitar before I could read, because my dad's a folk singer. Oh, okay. And so there was always a guitar there, and he would sing to us. Was your dad, like, prominent, or just playing around town, He or was really good, uh -huh. and he, I think there's this thing in him, which is that he sort of sacrificed a career that could have been a real career for have kids, and to have a job. Right. So he plays it safe, much more than I do. Right. And I think that that... Is, and has really influenced his whole life. Like I think he's yeah. got that repressed. Right. 
He's and, also competitive. And influenced your whole life. There's, For sure. There's that line, like, we, sure. we live our parents' unlived lives, you know? I think that's definitely true for me. Yeah, um, me too. So my dad, you know, I, I played the guitar. I, I, I had a uh, bass guitar was the first thing I played as a serious, uh, my own instrument, I think, when I started when I was, like, nine. And then I played the drums starting when I was 10 for the right. school band. Right. Um, at, at PS6. Like, like we marching band or? No, like we had this weird after school jazz program oh, okay. at public school six. Right. Uh, run by these weird fundy Christians <laughs> who were really good jazz musicians but also like very deeply proselytizing. Right. So they, we so would like learn, with their learn like King of the Road or the Mission Impossible theme was like a big important uh -huh. you know like a school band yeah like everybody's yeah. a little bit off key a little bit out of time no that's that's oh right yeah that's good that's a good i never got to play that song was that any more i wasn't the first chair drummer i was the second or third chair drummer so mission impossible i didn't get to play um i played king of the road which is super simple, yeah. like a bossa nova beat. Yeah. Anyway, like, you know, and then they would hand us these comic books of Jews for Jesus, <laughs> which is like fire and brimstone. And, right. You know, we would read them because we were all metalheads. Right. We kind of got off on all the people going to hell. Right. We had a complete opposite effect. <laughs> complete opposite effect. That sounds good to me, man. No, it was exactly that. Like, they didn't understand that we were wearing, like, Iron Maiden and That's Ozzy Osbourne t-shirts. So and they were handing us these Christian comics, which were basically the exact same thing. I'm thinking, like, sex abstinence courses probably have the same, like... Well, I remember one where there was a guy who had sex in the backseat of his of car, and then... And then he did all these drugs, and he drove off the off the bridge. Uh -huh. And as he's like drowning, he's going through the whole of his life. Right. Satan is there on his shoulder, being like, "Come with me." <laughs> and we were all like, "Yeah, Satan." <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? That was our that was our take. So it did, but but we did learn the music. So right. so uh, and I, they did I actually did a whole backwards masking class. Backwards masking. What's mm -hmm. that? You never heard of this? No. Like Led Zeppelin I, has all these backwards messages in their oh, records. Oh, right. The okay. Yeah, backwards. John is so dead. So you just play yeah. the record backwards. Right. And then the preacher tells you what it was. Right. Which, of course, is totally absurd. Um, Do you know, you, we talked about Funkadelic the other day. Yeah. Do you know a song called Elegy and Light by Funkadelic? No, okay. it's okay. It's almost like a rap. It's, it's, you hear this music that's backwards, uh -huh. and then I think it's George Clinton over it does this thing. He says, um, give us this day our daily bread and, and it's all about it's money good, George <laughs> you know and it's like my Cadillac and my pinky ring restoreth me in thee you know and he goes to this whole thing about like the worship of money right. and how fucking empty and ugly and horrible it is and how it leads everyone to you know perdition so this buddy of mine who I told you about who was a scholar of funk somehow got a hold I guess he played it backwards, uh -huh. and you could hear that the music that would, that they were dubbing over backwards was this gospel song. Right. And then he found the original gospel song, and it's this beautiful, like, oh, Lord, we love thee, and these backup singers and this guy on the piano. It's so beautiful the way they did, like the anger. Well, backwards you know. sounds are incredibly oh, haunting and amazing. I love Beck uses them a lot. It's yeah. really effective. Well, yeah, because the attack is reversed. It's like David Lynch would do a lot of this. It gives you this incredible, weird, queasy, but very sort of attractive 
Because you feeling. like, it's like simultaneously absolutely alien and deeply recognizable. Do it, yeah, do it backwards. Yeah. So these were preachers who were saying that Led Zeppelin had uh, somehow arranged, they were such geniuses yeah. that the lyrics to Stairway to Heaven were actually made sense going forward, but made more sense going backward. <laughs> so they would play Stairway to Heaven backward. Wait, uh, and, how's and they that would, work? They would, they would, you would sort of hear from Robert Plant, and and the preacher would go, "Do you see what he just said? He said, decide to smoke marijuana." And you know, that's hilarious. We were the metalheads, and we were like, "Fucking awesome, dude!" Did he say that? They're fucking geniuses. Yeah. How could they have figured out right. how to make these records great forwards and backwards? So we would go home and, and totally destroy and smoke dad's marijuana. record player while we were smoking <laughs> marijuana and play the record backwards mm. and it, I guess that opens your musical consciousness even deeper this is like Carl Heinz Stockhausen you know or John Cage it all goes you know it all goes yeah, in the right and yeah. so thank you to these weird fundamentalist preachers who were completely nuts yeah um <laughs> And sitting in their church basement somewhere, so playing Led Zeppelin records backwards, yeah. and, and you know Jethro Tull and you know the Beatles. Yeah. Um, turn me on, Dead Man. Actually, if you do re if you do um, listen to Revolution Number no. Nine backwards, it is pretty convincing. Really? It says Turn Me On, Dead Man. What about that thing? What is the? the but what does that mean? What's the the thing with? This is an accident. Pink Floyd and the the the. Oh, um, and Dark Side of the. Or Dark Side, oh, Dark of, side of, of Oz. Dark Side of the, yeah, and, and the Wizard of Oz. Up on internet, I've never done this. Yeah, yeah. Wizard of Oz um, and Dark Side of the Moon apparently line up perfectly. Right. If you start at a certain point in the movie, everything's a commentary on what's going on in the exactly. movie. Exactly. Right? And yeah. it syncs up like perfect. And there's instructions you can download on the internet how to, when exactly to start Dark Side right. of the Moon and how it syncs up with uh, Wizard of Oz. Don't try this at home, folks. Well, to me, this just proves everything that Joseph Campbell was writing. Oh, the that everything is the same story. Yeah. yeah. Well, that yeah. there's several stages. There's right. like the introduction. There's the call to adventure. There's entrance into the belly of the whale. Right. There's right. that whole mythic structure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so and 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 speaking of which, structure uh, became an obsession of mine. And it, oh well, you were asking me about music, but um, so we did that. Uh, uh, we had a metal band in '85 or when I was a kid. Uh, no, 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 it wasn't '85. It must have been young. I was like. Eleven. What was it called? Shrapnel. <laughs> That's a great name for a metal band. Holy Especially shit. when you're eleven. That's a really good name. And, uh, it's fun to say. When you're um, shrapnel. When you're like when you're like in a really crappy public school where you get in a fight every day and, oh, and you got detention every day. Yeah. Actually, I think the detention every day kind of saved me because. Right. Um, it made me even more angry, but also because every day they went out and smoked pot. Yeah. For lunch. Yeah. And if I had gotten that. I didn't like it. I only did it because of peer pressure, actually. Right. It turned my head into a very, I felt like it turned my head into a toaster. Like a plastic toaster, like right. not a, like a cheap toaster. Like I felt like I was holding this very unwieldy hmm. pliance on my shoulders and I couldn't right. think straight. I really hated it. But I only did it for friends. Yeah. Right. And, uh, well, peer pressure, really that's true. And they, especially in the, when you're an 11 year old boy and all your friends are 12 or 13. Right. Um, and that means some of them are like a foot taller than you. Right. right? Yeah. And then and they, they're pressuring you into doing smoking herb in, the, in Riverside Park, you know, because your parents are out to lunch and whatever, you just cut school. So we would go to school ourselves. We'd get on the bus, we'd just go around the corner and come back home. Right. And meet each other. And, you know, if we wanted to cut school, we would cut school, go to 48th Street, look at the guitars, we'd cut school, go to the movies. Mm. 
We went and saw Spinal Tap. We saw it all day. Right. Cut school, go see Spinal Tap. Came out in 84 when we were 12 years old. And, uh, you know, like, I remember a lot of that. And if I, you know, I, I, I did get pulled out of the school, thank God. My parents woke up enough to get me out of the school. And I think I uh, got um, some form of financial aid to go to Columbia Prep, which was a fucking the best school I've ever been yeah. to in my life still. Yeah. And saved my life. Um, but it was very, actually a specific day, if I remember this correctly. Uh, we kind of got busted for smoking pot um, by my, because my, my, my friend Toby lived on 92nd Street and I lived on 79th Street. So he would take the bus down and then we would meet and do the Crosstown bus together. So we'd meet on 79th Street. You're on the west side. I was on the west side. We right. were going to the east side. Right. Because we were, I don't know, for whatever reason, we were going to school on the east side. Here's a car alarm. And we had to bus across town. So he would meet me and he would call me when he was leaving. So I would get my act together and go down. Right. So he called me one day and my mother picked up on the extension and he goes, oh, and don't forget, bring the pot. And I was screwed. Yeah. Um, and we'd also gotten, we also got busted one time by the, by the police in the school, which was even scarier. Right. And I, I remember that, that one day that my parents were really informed and uh, I was being, I was going from my mother's house to my father's house because it was joint custody, mm. which was also extraordinarily confusing. And um, they picked me up, and instead of, so I was sort of manipulating the situation. I was going to Toby's house anyway, and my mother said to my dad, by no means do you let him go to Toby's house today. They just got busted for marijuana, blah, 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 blah. So my dad picked me up and drove me all the way to Brooklyn because my stepbrother was in a play. Oh. And I went, it was like one of those absolute turning points. Like I went from the clutches of the weird, pothead, druggy nowhere, Nowheresville to this play, and I loved the play. Oh. And it was a play called The Poet and the Rent by David Mamet. It was a high school play written by David Mamet, and my stepbrother was in it. And the kid who played the poet was fabulous. And as it turns out, we, we, were, we went to the summer camp that next year, and they were, they were going to do The Poet and the Rent. Same thing. And because I had loved this kid's performance so much, I went into audition, and I was cast in the lead role. Oh, really? So I was the poet. Oh. And I never left stage since then. Uh. So it went, there was a moment there where the, the, there's always been this tension between drama and music. And tension, I think, in many ways, between this kind of the discipline that's required for, for drama and some of the addictive behaviors that happen when you do a lot of music. Because, right. you know, when we have rehearsals upstairs, you can't bring pot into a rehearsal. You can't bring a beer into a rehearsal. Forget that. And then never, ever in the theater world. If you have a band practice, you don't have a band practice without a beer. You don't have a band practice without smoking pot beforehand. Right. All the musicians are high all the time. Right. You know, and it was really interesting, like, this... Well, not all of them, but you know what I mean? It's the culture yeah. of it. Yeah. The theater is an extremely disciplined world. You are late, you get fired. Period. Really? And they're ready to replace you. Huh? You are late by five minutes twice, you get fired. You know? Um, actors have specific breaks that are determined by actors' equity. You have a break, you have a five-minute break every 60 minutes, you have a, or you have a 10-minute break after 90 mm. minutes. That's interesting, because so, most people think actors are pretty self-indulgent and undisciplined. Maybe so, but the theater isn't. Uh, okay, so we're talking about Hollywood actors versus play. No, 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 maybe the actors are, but the rules of the theater oh, are there because I gotcha. of... I got you. We don't want the thing to collapse. Right. Um, and I, I, that really was hard when I went to Thailand because they're always late. Right. And I went ballistic. Yeah. Because it disrupted my whole... 
idea of what a rehearsal is. I'm like, no, you come on time. They're right. like, oh, no, but we are on time. They're a half an hour late. So how'd you mind. get into banjo? Banjo is an unusual I instrument. I picked up a banjo. Uh, I picked up a banjo um, at a yard sale in, outside of PA, in PA, because um, of Steve Martin. Oh, right. I love Steve Martin. Right. I love those Steve Martin records. Yeah. I loved when he would play Foggy Mountain Breakdown. Uh, you know, he played. He's, he's really good, right? He's very amazing. good. Amazing. Yeah. He's an amazing banjo player. He's like, one, he's got to be one of the best in the world. In really? My view. Um, yeah, because of the sheer. Because I don't view banjo as a competitive sport, which a lot of banjo playing kind of ends up being, right? How fast you're you shredding. Play? Banjo all the competitions. Time. Yeah. Who's ranked? Who right. wins the prize at the, this festival or that festival? Yeah. That's all. I find that kind of weirdly creepy. Um, Steve Martin is just very creative. And right. He's got an amazing sense of musicality and, and rhythm. And some of his pieces I just outright stole. Yeah. Like outright stole the arrangements that I would play on the road. And I hope he knows that. <laughs> um, but you know, like I, he inspired yeah. me and I bought a really cheap banjo, 25 bucks at yeah. a yard sale. And in fact, that was the only banjo I had uh, all the way through Gasland. It is the banjo in Gasland. It was 20, um, 25 bucks. Right. And it's terrible. Uh, it's, it's, I think, what Tom Waits calls a fly swatter banjo. Because um, it's just funny. a terrible banjo. You, can't, you can barely get any chords out of it. And I managed to play... Uh, when I got a real banjo, I was like, wow, you can actually play notes on the banjo. This, this, this banjo was just, you know... But I still have it. And yeah. I played, uh, you know, um, This Night is Your Land in... Right. Uh, and you've played... I heard you were talking to someone at the party. You've played... You've been on stage with uh, Pete Seeger... I played with Pete Seeger a couple times. Are people uh, who don't know who Pete Seeger is? I mean, what's he? He's like the, the James Brown of folk music. He's like legendary. You yeah, know. he's not only one of the great authors of the folk mu music movement in America. He's one of the great authors of America. Period. Right. Yeah. He I mean, there would be no Bob Dylan without Pete Seeger. No way. And yeah. there's no hippies without Pete Seeger. There's right. no folk revival. There's no Peter Paul and Mary. There's no. Well, Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger right, together. Right, and they're both—they both sort of came out of the they depression. Were yeah, yeah. Woody was—Woody died much younger, right? Woody died in his sixties. Pete died in his nineties. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I—that's the story of meeting Pete Seeger's. Uh, I, I put Pete Seeger in the Gasland because I, Pete Seeger was a role model because his—he um, found a way to campaign for the Hudson River by connecting it to New York City. So he reminded New York that that's water, that if you pollute right. upstream, it's coming down. It's coming your way. And he yeah. sailed this clear water ship up and down the Hudson and educated people about the river. And yeah. His whole river was a Hudson River. Right. My river is a Delaware River. It's right. the other side of the valley. Which we floated down two days ago. Beautiful. And uh, you know, um, it's the pristine river, it's the watershed. It's not been polluted like the Hudson. Right. And so what I wanted to do is remind New Yorkers that, that those waterways are connected because New Yorkers actually get their water from the headwaters of the Delaware, from the, from the reservoirs. And if they were fracking up there, that would destroy New York. And New York City, I think, is the reason why all the tide was turned. Mm. But it had to do with connecting that. And that yeah. was what Pete Seeger right. taught me. Um, but I've had the good fortune of playing with an enormous... I played with Yoko and Sean. I played with Natalie Merchant. Uh, Yoko and Sean Lennon we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Yoko <laughs> I guess there's only one Yoko. There's really only one. Uh, it um, must have been amazing been for your lucky. dad to yeah. see you with Pete Seeger. I mean, that must have been a hell of a I don't moment. think my dad was there to see me with Pete Seeger either time that happened. My dad was there when I played with Yoko and yeah, Sean. Right. Um, Yoko Ono gave me the Lennon Ono Peace Grant 
which is an award that they give to po political people, grassroots people. Um, it's $50,000 cash prize towards the work that we're doing and an acknowledgement, obviously, of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's given out in Iceland every two years. Yeah. So in 2010, which was John Lennon's 70th birthday celebration, I got that award alongside of, this is kind of ridiculous, Alice Walker, Michael Pollan, and Barbara Kowalczyk, who's the woman in Food Inc., whose son died yeah. from eating a diseased hamburger. Right. And um, that was an enormous, crazy moment because they were doing a concert in Reykjavik that night, and they come up, their staff comes up after uh, uh, the end of the, uh, the end, towards the end of the concert, she goes, well, they want all the award winners to come up on stage and sing Give Peace a Chance with, with the, with the um, with Yoko and Sean at the end of the show. You, you want to do that? And I was like, hell yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I want to play. So I want to sing. And they just, you know, so I get up backstage, and it's the second to last song, whatever Sean and Yoko are playing. And they are an incredible duo, a mm -hmm. uh, mother-son team. If you've never seen Yoko Ono perform, she is absolutely amazing. She's a force of nature. She is an avant-garde genius. She's the person who made John Lennon political. People don't give her credit for the incredible impact that she's had on the art world and on the music world and on the world of politics. Yeah. She created the bed-ins. They would not have been doing that anti-war campaigning. There would be no um, women's campaigning from John without Yoko in his life. There's just no question there. Uh, no imagine without right. Yoko. And people don't give her that credit that she deserves. I think it's so easy to blame the woman, so easy to blame the Asian woman for whatever you want. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but she has been an incredible inspiration to me. And peace and love, that's the message. So, you know, go to Iceland, spend three, four days on Peace and Love, that's worth it. Um, so anyway, I get backstage and I see Alice Walker. She's kind of loosening up. She's kind of like grooving. She's like dancing <laughs> back there. And I'm like, I look at Alice Walker and she's in the wings. Yeah. She's like in her own world. She's like dancing. And I'm like, damn, if Alice Walker's going to dance, I'm going to play the guitar. Because yeah. I know he'll give a piece of chance. Sure, you do. So it was like that moment, and like, you know, I, I said to Sybil, Sean's listening, I said, Is there a guitar around here? And she was like, You can play Sean's electric because he's going to play the acoustic on this one. It was like a moment in like School of Rock where yeah. Jack Black is like, Give me a guitar, and then there's a guitar, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. So I walk out and I strap in, and I've got Sean's like, 60s Fender Mustang. And Sean's cool with it. Sean's come back to coach everybody already. He's right. like, I'm like, I'm playing your guitar. And he's like, great, it's C and G. And I'm like, I know, it's just two chords. Yeah. All we are saying mm -hmm. is a C, yeah. the G, C. That's it. And nobody actually knows the lyrics, the verse of that song. They don't even know them. They're handing out lyric sheets. You know, everybody's talking about this and that and the other. Oh, thing. right, right, Nobody right. Knows that. Yeah. So that, that I found illuminating. That's kind of um, chaotic, that verse. It's extremely right? chaotic, because yeah. I think it's part of the point, right? Right. And so I get on stage and I realize I'm strapped in to Sean's rig, you know. So I'm, Sean Lennon is to my right and he's playing and Yoko is in front of me. So I'm kind of between Yoko and Sean and I'm playing and I look out, my parents are also in the audience. I didn't invite my parents to Sundance, they didn't get to come to the Oscars, they didn't do any of that stuff. For this, they were coming. Right. You know, this is Sean and Yoko and this is Iceland and my dad was there, my mom was there, my stepmother was there. I said, you're coming, you know? So they were in the audience. So I see this and there's this huge sea of little flashlights that Yoko has given out, these peace lights that she called peace court. And they're flashing all these lights. And um, I go to sing the chorus and I feel this energy next to me. And I, and I see a mic put, put in my face like this. And I go to sing, all we are saying, and it's Ringo Starr. 
What? Ringo Starr's holding Ringo a mic in your so face? I mean, there's all these pictures. <laughs> Where I'm playing guitar and here's Sean, here's Joker, here's Ringo Starr. <laughs> George Harrison's kids are on the other end of the stage. The mayor of Reykjavik's there. I'm like, oh, this is man. just... And that moment I left my body. Yeah. I was, I was like up on the ceiling. Yeah. I was like, there's someone playing guitar here, standing next to Ringo Starr, but it's not me. Right. I don't know who this is. Yeah. What's happening right now? This was a crazy surreal. moment. Yeah. Surreal moment. And, um, you know, they've... They've been amazing supporters. So cool. We wouldn't have the the, the Beatles give us their music for well, we had to pay for it. But the, the Beatles said yes to using the music and how to let go of the world. Paul McCartney came out against fracking. Yeah, um, you know that I've had a, a relationship with Artists Against Fracking, which was Yoko's. Yoko and Sean started Artists Against Fracking and helped. Uh, advise them, you know. Um, so, did, did you have this sort of support network when you started making Gasland, or this no. all came after? Hell no! It was all. That movie was made for, you know, I mean, in the first edit, it went to Sundance for less than five grand. Five thousand dollars, and, what, and what's a normal documentary budget? Two hundred, three hundred grand. I mean, I really it, think it's hard to say. Yeah, there's no normal. But nobody makes a movie for like. Free, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like, I had twenty-five hundred dollars to drive around the country. I had a camera that someone lent me. Yeah. Uh, so I had twenty-five hundred, twenty-five hundred dollars to start with. That was like tapes, money for gas. I slept on the side of the road a bunch. Yeah. I at one point had I shot for thirty out of thirty-one days on this road trip. Like I shot every day, hours and hours, ten hours. And I had at one point all the tapes. It was tapes right. in a bag. <laughs> and I knew what was in there, but it has no copies. Right. So I wouldn't leave the car. Right. The ba- I slept with the bag yeah. next to me. I went yeah. to the bathroom at a truck stop with the bag. Right. I remember when I came home and I showed Matt Sanchez, the editor, really, and the co-creator of the whole series, right. what was in the tapes. And he, had just, he was working on the movie for free. Yeah. Every once in a while, we'd cut him a check for like a couple hundred bucks. But right. he was working all night. We were still working on, we were working on plays. So we would be working on a play called Surrender upstairs from 7 to 11. 11 o'clock would hit, all the actors would go home. I'd come down and work with Matt till 4 in the morning. Next day, get up, do it all over again. So we were doing dual projects. Surrender was a huge play. It was 50 people. Uh, it was a, a military installation working with a collaboration with a, um, um, a war veteran of the Iraq War named Jason Christopher Hartley, who wrote a great book called Just Another Soldier. And he was uh, teaching. We want, I wanted to make a play where, because we went through the training to make a film about the Iraq War, and the military training was so fascinating, I wanted to give it to the audience. So we so devised you, you a way. You went through what, like a week or 10 days? What kind hours. of training? Four hours. Of, oh, for me? Yeah. No, we, me and our ensemble trained, trained for this film Memorial Day, my first film. It was weeks, six, seven weeks to transform into soldiers. Really? Yeah, yeah. We went on for weeks. Training. Like a boot camp sort of experience. Definitely. Wow. And the way the military does it is, if you and I were to sign up today, together, we would go through our entire war history with each other. Really? Because that's the system. I'm not fighting because George Bush said some right. ideological fighting thing. for each I'm other. Fighting to make sure that you don't die. Yeah. And when you, yeah. the training that was so, the training is so regimented. You have a certain way to tie your boots. You have a certain way to hold your rifle. You have a certain way to put your finger next to the trigger and next to the safety, yeah. right? You never say the word gun. If you say gun, it's push-ups. Guns are big things on battleships. Yeah. It's a rifle or it's a weapon. Right. Those are the two things that it is. It's right. not a gun. It's <laughs> something different. If you say gun, you fucked up, you do push-ups. Right. And 
so we would we would learn all that stuff. We had the uniforms, we had the replica rifles, and we would assemble uh, rooms that we would raid, close quarters combat, just like they would do in Iraq. Mm. And you know, you enter a room. There's the breach man. He busts the door down. The number one man goes left. He clears that corner and he clears that corner. Number two man goes right. He clears this corner and that corner. Number three man left. Number four man right. And you have your points of domination in that room. And you've cleared the room. You say room clear. And there's nobody in there. If there's somebody in that corner, it looks like a threat. You shoot them. Because if you don't, they might shoot the guy right behind you. Because you've come in so quickly. Right. right. So they might shoot you. Right. And it's such a regimented thing that you have no choices. Right. And to have no choices is freedom. Right. It's fascism. It's SNM. It's a vacation. Yeah. Right, right, right. So you're so I became fascinated by this because it was a kind of nothingness. Right. To really follow the rules is to become a kind of nothing, which is to have no conscience, which is to have none of those pesky little moral problems right. that you that torture you all the hell day long. And no death. You avoid well, death. Well, no, you die. A lot of people die. Right. Before, but which, which is what dismantles the whole system right. and makes these people nuts when they come home and you get PTSD. No, but, of course. But, of course. But, but I mean, by joining into yes, this automaton, you are, yes. you are no longer an individual. And once you're no longer an individual, then you're no longer mortal. And, right. you know, it's the whole superorganism thing you and I were talking so about. So I wanted to see yeah. what, would, what would happen if we gave that close quarters combat training to an audience. Right. So I, I devised this play called Surrender. Because a soldier has to surrender to fight, to surrender your individuality. Right. And um, Jason at first hated the name surrender. He was like, why is it called surrender? I'm a soldier. Why is it called surrender? Then he figured it out. He was like, I get it. You have to surrender to fight. Like, That's the whole point, right? So we taught, we taught all these actors how to do this. And then their job was to teach audience members. So when you came as an audience member to this play, and you could look it up, it was a lot, there was a lot of ink on this piece, and NPR and all of the theater world in New York. We gave, we took your clothes away. We gave you boots, a uniform, and a rifle, and you had to learn how to do all this stuff. And in the first hour and forty-five minutes, Jason Christopher Hartley taught, and with the, with our whole ensemble, who were the squad leaders, right? So ten people in a squad. So you had two actors, eight audience members per squad. We could seat probably about one hundred and twenty on the floor, which was the training floor, and then we could have people who were observers on the outside, about fifty of them. So not a huge audience, right? Um, and so you'd get there, and you would uh, learn this for an hour and a half, and uh, you would learn your, you go right. And, and if the audience messed up, if they had their finger on the trigger instead of on the safety, do push-ups, 10 push-ups. Even, didn't matter who it was. We had a World War II vet who was 90 years old come to this per performance, and people bonded so quickly. Yeah. And the next part of it was, what people didn't realize was that all around the staging floor, we had a fake Iraqi village set around the perimeter. And we had all these fake Iraqis inside of it. And we had set up all these different scenarios where you, you come in and you, there's a person with an AK-47 who looks like a terrorist in the corner, and you have to shoot them. And they shoot them, and they move on, and then they, they were taught how to search the dead bodies, and they would have their screaming wife screaming in Arabic like, that you just shot my husband, and he was just trying to defend himself, and they would be going through this fucking situation. It was very intense. Wow. And then you would go to the next room, and there would be um, you know, a guy with a sandbag over his head who was obviously a captive, and you'd have to watch him. And you'd go in another room, and there would be two women, and one of them would fall over, like she got shot. And then everyone would, then the, the squad leader's job, the actor would be like, who the fuck shot the woman? And then 
everyone would be like, it wasn't me. And they were like, well, she's dead. And then her sister would be there crying over her body. So it was, it was set up. And then there was one room where there was a couple having sex. So you walked in on them having sex. And it's like, very, and then they, they stop. And then the girl who's like topless is like, pulls a gun out from under the pillow and starts to shoot at, and then they shoot. Inevitably, the, the participants would shoot the people in bed. Right. And, but the woman who, with the gun, who shot the soldier, would, that soldier would then end up in the hospital room where they would go into this intense ER and we had the, all these actors who were, who were nurses and uh, they would die. So we would take them off the battlefield and put them in the death room, which was a, a, a light blue hum and an intern sitting next to a payphone um, that said, you know, are you okay, you're comfortable? I'm only an intern, I've been told to read this sheet. Um, you are dead. <laughs> oh, man. It was like this very surreal vision so, of death. And then they would offer you a Diet Coke. And, of course. Um, so, but the death room was actually very peaceful, and people really right. kind of got off on it. But anyway, then the rest of the squad would go on without you. Right. Um, so you'd go through that for 40 minutes, and there were 10 rooms, and each room was uh, one minute in the hallway and two minutes in the room. Um, and then you'd come out, and it was like, you're done, your tour duty's over, you're in the Kuwaiti airport, the stewardesses would come out, everybody have a beer to be intermission. Beers and a strip show for intermission, like a USO show, fantastic. The, the girls who did this strip show were out of this world, they were amazing. It was like an apocalypse now. They're wearing the Star Spangled Banner, or the, the red, white, blue brassiers right, and everything. Right. And um, then we piled everybody onto the plane, which was the audience seating. So the plane, and you'd see this overhead projection of a Delta flight announcement, and the stewardess would come on, and she would start to explain how, oh, we're going home now, and, and then the, the video would start to go, and you'd see like pictures of dead children, and all these kinds oh, of, like, like you were having a flashback, and then right. a, a terrorist, in quotes, would, with a, all that thing, would come out of the bathroom of the plane and stab the stewardess, and she was starting to bleeding down the side of her head. She was still doing her in-flight announcement, right? And then your, the main squad leader named Brandon Smith, a brilliant actor, would come out of the bathroom and see this was going of the plane. I see this was going on, and he would have his rifle and he would start to shoot, but he couldn't actually shoot her. It was like it's a very classic, actually, soldier's nightmare where he's trying to shoot to save someone, and the gun won't fire. And then all of a sudden, boom! Big dance sequence. And the, the play, the third act of the play, is actually started. And that is the welcome home celebration, and there's monologues, and then. There is the award ceremony where we awarded members of the audience the special heart or this commendation. Right. We always did that for the critics. We always gave the critics the award. <laughs> fun. And then the, then the third person who was called up for an award was an award posthumously. Right. So they would be escorted to their own coffin. So you had an audience member being buried and their mourning family would come in. And then we would ask the other actors, another audience member to come and deliver the eulogy and the eulogy was on screen above them. So they're reading lines, it's like dramatic karaoke. Right. And all of a sudden now you have these two audience members who've never been on stage maybe in their lives acting. One's dead, the other one is reading the eulogy. The next scene, we put audience members in a wheelchair in the military hospital and they went through that. The next scene was a, an, an, act, an audience member in bed with their girlfriend who couldn't perform because he's having flashbacks of all the great. So you took this whole four hour experience. Wow. That's and heavy. at the end it was at the end you were getting a job and your job was in a meatpacking plant. Right. And you were having flashbacks of terrorists coming in and one terrorist or one fighter combatant, whatever you want to call them. I mean we got so into this we called everybody 
by the racist names that the military uses. Right. Um, and uh, you know that we actually forced an audience member to commit a war crime at the end. And in an hour and a half, people from off the street killed people that they didn't even know, just because of the training. Just like the Milgram experiment. It was yeah. very much like that. Yeah. And so was Abu Ghraib, though. Right. Abu Ghraib is his one-upsmanship. That was my previous story about that. But but the idea that normal people from off the streets can become trained killers in two hours. Yeah. And my friend, I never forget this. My friend Ron Russell, who's a great theater director in New York City, incredibly compassionate individual, runs this huge theater education program in New York City. He shot the girl in the bed, and he ducked out of the way of her fire, and sh and like shot her. And he came up to me. He was shaking at the end of the night. He was shaking. He couldn't get over it. He was like, "I shot that girl," and I was like, "Yeah, I know." Everybody shoots her. And he was like, no, 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 I don't know. He was like, in tears, he was like, you don't understand. I shot her like 16 times. Right, he lost it. And I, I ducked and I got out of the way and I, sh I killed that girl. Right. And it was crazy. Like, so we gave people the experience of what soldiers were going through right. um, in a very, very tiny little taste sure. of it. You know what sure. I mean? Sure, yeah. But enough so that they understood that these were not the guys to blame, right? And that these were the That's guys. That this was an insane, insane undertaking, and that you only fought for the person sitting next to you. Yeah. So we were doing that play, yeah. upstairs, the entire <laughs> time we were editing Gasland. All right. Downstairs. Wow. So you're on the war <laughs> so footing. It was crazy. Yeah. You know, and we put the play on and uh, ended up uh, uh, getting a Drama Desk nomination. It was oh, really nice. Popular. What, what um, do you think of Sebastian Junger? Have you you read his stuff? Or well, I know him. Oh, you I know. Mean, him? I, it, Tim and Sebastian were at Sundance with Restrepo. Restrepo, right. When right. I was there with Gasland. Right. And so that was a class of, of 10, 2010. Right. Me, uh, Restrepo, Wasteland, and Exit Through the Gift Shop were all oh. Sundance Slam Dance movies. Right. And we all went to the Oscars together. Oh, great so movies. Tim Hetherington died three weeks after the Oscars. Right. The last picture that he tweeted out was me and Lucy Walker and him at the Oscars in our tuxedos. Um, and the next one he tweeted out was, this is getting really bad. And the next thing we know, he was dead. And, and so we, I don't, you know, I don't really know Sebastian very well. But that film, Restrepo, we saw it on opening night, and we were shaking. Hardcore. We, yeah. we, Matt and I were like, we walked out of that theater like, yeah. holy shit, this is insane. And, I mean, I can't believe those guys. The war, real war reporters. Yeah. I'm, I'm with Pink Floyd, you know, like, I'd never go to war, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I, would, I would go to jail instead. Yeah. These guys go just to report on it. Right. These are ins unbelievable heroes, and they die, they die all the time. Yeah. Um, but he makes that I have, a, I have a friend who's right now reporting in Afghanistan, and I'm terrified for her. Um, and I say, you know, you, you know war reporters tend to have an expiration date, you better get, get out of this soon, you know? But, you know, if it wasn't for those guys, we wouldn't have the images that teach us not to go to war. We wouldn't have Tim Hetherington's unbelievable reporting. We wouldn't have right. Chris Hondro's photograph of the girl crying after the checkpoint where her parents have just been shot by the U.S. military and she's covered in blood and screaming. Chris Hondro's took that photograph, very famous photograph. He died right alongside of Tim Hetherington in Libya. Um, you know, it's, it's, we are in a time of war. All of my work before Gaslight was about the war. Really? I did 10 plays about the war. There's one right here. Um, I, 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 and I did a film about the war. I was uh, the spokesperson for Theaters Against War. We organized 500 member theaters in New York City against right. the war. We are still in a fucking time of war. And my work 
my work right now is about getting people to understand climate change that is happening right now. It's, mm. it's, it's all about the things that are happening all around us yeah. that we refuse to look at. Right. And we're at war now. Yeah. You know, when Abu Ghraib happened, I felt that every American was implicated because it was our fraternity hazing, girls gone wild, you know, uh, beach date rape culture that had created that just as much as it was the FBI and Dick Cheney and the, the rules. Our culture, we decided to do a, frater a sexual fraternity hazing experiment yeah. on prisoners. Only Americans could have done it in the way they did it. And they did it for the camera, they did it because of the camera, and they did it in the same way that the girls going wild will strip on the beach and or that people will do these pull their pants down and shit like this because it's this crazy part of american fraternity hazing think think about how often in, on television a laugh line is well you know hey hey pretty boy in prison they really like guys like right, you. right that's a laugh right, line right. you're gonna get ass raped in prison ha 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 what kind of culture is this well i mean and you know we went really hardcore into that world of memorial day uh, uh, it was called Memorial Day because right after Abu Ghraib, I went on Memorial Day weekend at Ocean City, Maryland, yeah. and that's a war holiday. Memorial Day is a holiday where we res where we respect and honor all the war dead, not just the soldiers. The soldiers have Veterans Day. Right. Memorial Day is everyone who died, right. civilians and soldiers alike. But we've turned it into this jingoistic American flag: right. have a barbecue, go to the beach, get fucked up. It's the unofficial beginning of summer. Right. And right after Abu Ghraib in 2004. I ended up at, at this one of these places where they're like drunk fraternity assholes right. throwing up on their date, going support our troops, yeah, America. And I was like, you, you know, you don't know what you're saying. Yeah. You may say that if you know what you're saying, but it's so clear that you don't, and it's so clear that this mentality. You know, the true story of Abu Ghraib is that all, those dudes were in Virginia Beach right before they shipped out, and they did all the same shit to their friends. They took pictures of them with when they were passed out with their pants pulled down, all this kind of stuff. They did it here in America first. Right. And when the CIA and the, whoever was running in Iraq had sent out that memo to the Abu Ghraib people, be creative, they said. These are your approved, um, they didn't call them torture techniques, these are your approved interrogation techniques. You can hit with an open hand, you can use stress positions, you can do waterboarding. And then at the bottom it said, be creative. So what are they going to do? What they know? They yeah, made, they made uh, enforced rape porn on the. Iraq. Well, and, and the intended audience was their buddies back that they had just yeah, left, right? right? I mean, that's who they were sending well, the photos to. They were going to show them to. to each other. Who knows yeah. what they were doing? Because the truth is that that yeah. this was something that was. I felt the Iraq War was in every conversation, even more so when you were sitting in a cafe in New York City and you're listening to two people who don't vote talk about Britney Spears, that was the most intense conversation about the genocide in Iraq. Because they weren't fucking talking about Iraq. Right. And that's part of the thing that allows it to happen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. As a, as a yeah. grandchild of Holocaust survivors, one of the greatest books about the subject is They Thought They Were Free, yeah. which is these case studies about n Nazis in Germany who didn't, un who didn't pay attention to the ovens and the genocide. They thought they were doing the right thing. Right. All the people in America who didn't protest Iraq, who just sat around have, doing their normal lives, I felt they were guilty. But are we overwhelmed by our, our, our implication in all these things? Like, I sometimes think, I'm not a vegetarian, but, but I know right. that pigs are intelligent animals and, you know. No, that's true. Uh, we've got 
cat sitting between us here on the table, <laughs> you know, beautiful cat that we have this relationship with. And, and when you think about, I, I mean, one of the reasons I think the whole, we call it the Holocaust, although there have been so many of them, but that's the Holocaust. Yeah. I think one of the reasons that has a particular resonance is that we're doing that. That, that, that what the, not, the Nazis used cattle cars. The Nazis used the same sort of technology that we use now in our, our industrialized you know, livestock system. Yeah. And I, I feel like sometimes I think, you know, I'm, a, I'm one of those Nazis. I'm one of those, because I know it's evil. I know it's incredibly evil. Right. And I had fucking bacon for breakfast this morning, right. you know? Right. And sometimes I feel like there's so much evil in this culture and and i don't want to go off on a rant because people who listen to this have heard me do it a thousand times but i i feel like western civilization is fundamentally sick deeply sick well and so that's what your book says too and i think that that's yeah. part of the thesis but it's overwhelming it's like yeah iraq's a mess afghanistan's a mess central america's a mess you know the the fucking pumping oil in ecuador is a mess the the food system is a mess it's such a mess that I'm overwhelmed. Guess what else agrees with you? The Bible. That is the thesis of the Bible. That it's everything such a mess you can't do anything about it? I don't know if it's that you can't do anything about it, but that you are in a particularly moral, difficult human dilemma because of it. Right. You know, Adam and Eve, we've discussed, we discussed this over the weekend, represent, is a metaphor, for 200,000 years of humans living at peace with nature and hunter-gathering. Although Elizabeth Colbert, who wrote The Sixth Extinction, said, I said, well, at one point in our interview, I said, there must be a time when humans lived in, in symbiosis with the planet. She goes, really, when? I said, well, she goes, maybe when there were a million people on the planet and not nine billion. I was like, well, maybe that was the deal. You know, like, when there were a million people on the planet, and we were one species that were Adam and Eve, that were hunter-gatherers, that, um, that hadn't invented this thing called agriculture and the wheel and civilization. That is what Adam and Eve was. And you describe it in your book very clearly. Right. Many b b birdies and many fishes, right? right? right. The guys who are like, yeah. uh, why would we, why would we hoard would we hunt? thing? We have everything here right. in front yeah. of us. You know, in New York City, full of mongo, mongo nuts. New York City, when they first came here, they said one shot would bring down thirty yeah. geese. And you could, the sky and you could was walk so across the cards. Yeah. yeah, you know, um, like that. That you know, you had this bounty. Well. Um, the Bible then says, Cain and Abel, the next chapter, the progeny of Adam and Eve. God accepts Abel's offering, but rejects Cain's offering. Cain doesn't know why, and a lot of people wrote a lot of stuff about this and figuring out speculation. I like the explanation that's in this book called Ishmael, oh, where, he says, where he says, yeah. well, Cain uh, was a tiller of the field, and Abel was a herder of sheep. To be a herder of sheep and to be a tiller of the field, there's a very big distinction. To be a tiller of the field, you need to own and control land. Yeah. In other words, you're an agri you're agriculturalist, you're a civilizationist. To be a herder of sheep, not really. You can kind of graze and wander around and whatever. You don't own land, but the Bible says very clearly, to own land, yeah. to believe in the idea of possession, which entails agriculture and civilization, means you are going to be a murderer. Yeah. You will become a murderer. Yeah. That concept, which is so different from the 200,000 years from before that, 
will create murder. And then, of course, the Tower of Babel and Noah's Ark and all, and all the morality and, right. the, and, the, and the craziness that ensues afterwards is the rest of the tale. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but these are folk tales yeah. that were assembled into one big document called the Bible um, that explain the best of the current philosophy, which is, of course, all allegory and all metaphor. Um, you know, and, and the idea then that, um, you know, the world is a gigantic mess for the last 10,000 years. Well, okay, we come to that conclusion like that's something new. <laughs> but that's the premise of, every, of all of our major religions. It's the right. premise of all of our major psychology. And it's, it's unfortunately the deal that we're working out. And it looks closer and closer to the prophecies that are in the Bible <laughs> that are coming true. Right. Um, but but doesn't mean that we are not, and who knows what this life really is. We don't really know. But we, on a metaphysical level or any level, we don't really know. The Tao of physics will tell you um, one thing, you know, um, and uh, like the Buddhists will tell you another thing. The truth is we don't really know. But we do know that it's a mess right now and we're thrust in this, yes, we're in this moment of personal choices and communal choices. And I think that as a community, for example, this weekend, we made the very conscious choice that we weren't going to serve any industrialized agriculture. Um, We were only going to work with the local farmers, what they produced. I don't believe that local meat production is necessarily evil. Local cheese production, certainly in my area, is not evil. The cheese that we ate this weekend all came from down the road. Most of the produce that we could could arrange, we came from a local place. Now, we had the luxury of doing that because we're in a tiny little town where we know the farmers and we know the butchers. And there's some disposable income. We're not like... Living at you know, right in an inner city, uh, what's the it's called? Well, a, a, a desert, mega city, a food desert. A mega city probably couldn't function along those lines. Yeah, it would be very very difficult. Yeah. So yeah, in in and uh, Michael Pollan, who I love, I w- I kind of agree with. Yes, industrial agriculture, you shouldn't partake in, especially in terms of meat. But that doesn't mean you can you have you have to be. A vegan, right? It means you have to be responsible where your food is coming from, which is probably better for you anyway. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's, but at the same time, you're right. There's a huge system that is incredibly toxic uh, to the planet. It's, it's, it causes an enormous amount of methane and climate change. It's bad for us. Um, but could ev- could nine billion people on the planet eat organic, local agriculture and produce? Well, our diets would have to really change substantially. Well, and that's, I think, what a lot of people right. are advocating for. And that's why I think that the key to all of this is uh, an intentional, gradual, compassionate reduction of human population. Because every time they say, well, we got to feed the future generations, we got to generate energy for the 9 billion people. Well, why do we have to have 9 billion people? Why? Growth, growth, growth. Why? Why is growth fundamental? This is bullshit. Development and economic growth brings the population uh, rate to zero. Like if you're in France or if you're, if you're, if you're, uh, if you, the reason why people have so many children is because that's a form of life insurance. Right. And, you right. know, in develop, there's two answers to the population problem. One is actually development. But how do you do development responsibly, right? And the second, from the standpoint of the climate and the environment. And the other one is education of women. Right. When you educate women, educate and empower. And empower, yeah. right? Yeah. You tend to have less yeah. children. So progressive values are actually a great thing yeah because we, we we deal with this problem in in, the, in how to let go of the world and love all the things climate can't change that movie 
basically accepts the fact that the world is going to go through radical and horrific changes due to the climate. Right. But what are the values that we have to invest in to get through that are the same values that we have to use to try to dismantle the right. fossil fuel system. Um, and, you know, we talk about how uh, in Africa, a lot of places are solarizing without going towards fossil fuels. Right. They don't um, have to pass through that, that stage. And yeah. so we, there are keys. They're not happening fast enough. Right. Our political system is completely corrupt. Um, it, well, not completely corrupt, but like 95% corrupt. <laughs> um, and, it is, and it's, I think that's why, you know, I think that the, the problem of the guilt of, oh my God, I'm doing this, and oh my God, I'm doing that, and oh my God, I'm participating in this, is part of the way that they trap you in their individualism. Right. And the individual consumer and the individual guilt-ridden, non-active mm. person are the same person to them because they're consuming just as much, just right. one of them feels bad. Right. The big difference is political action. If you start right. to take communal, group, political, direct action, and climate action is a team sport, so is, by the way, demo democratic action, and so is action on, on um, you know, uh, animal agriculture. These are all about d political organizing, political, direct action. When we organize, we win. When we don't organize and sit around and feel guilty at home, we don't win. We right. lose both personally, because right. we still get sucked into that individual aura, right? right? Ah, my God, what should I do? This is what Americans always think. Right. What do I have to do? Right. Well, guess what? You're not that fucking important. If the question was, what could I do as an individual to stop climate change? Well, the answer comes back almost every time, almost nothing. Right. Nothing. Almost nothing. Right. What can I do as a member or as a part of a movement? Well, a lot. Yeah. An enormous amount. Right. And, you know, that is what, what I'm trying to encourage, and that's what we're trying to say, is that part of our own cycle of en en enslavement is being trapped in this sense of, I'm a bad person. You're not a bad person. This is a problem for 10,000 years yeah. that is now coming through you. You have choices about how you act towards it. If you go, but this is where the Bible is kind of totally, you know, can get, lead us down the direction of being totally individualistic because it's all about your personal relationship to sin and guilt mm -hmm. and all this kind of stuff. Well, honestly, though, there are, there's a lot in the Bible which is about communal action and group and protecting your community. And, you know, um, that, yeah, we have to work on ourselves. We have to work on being together as much as we have to work on ourselves. Right. We probably have to work on being together more. Right. Because you noticed over this weekend that we just had a natural community was formed. Right. And I've watched this happen over and over again. Whether we were doing yeah. a military play, or whether we were working on the Ramayana in Thailand, or whether we were working on um, a play called The Bomb, which we did about 9-11, when our personal lives were coll collided with history and with political importance, this group of people, no matter how big or weird or different they were, fall in love with each other. Right. And it's, I watched it, I've, I've done this for 20 years. I've watched this over and over and over again. When the people in Gasland who are in that movie finally meet, they immediately love each other. When they meet in big groups, they is, it's a party. Yeah. It is on. And when we, when we work on something together as a group, that group of people this weekend fell in love with each other. Right. And if we, if, we, if, if we were working on a project together, we would fall in love with each other. And guess what? We would have had the conversations that we didn't have over the weekend to resolve some of the conflicts that were brewing. But people coming together in a space, in a room as a community always works. 
And it, all of a sudden, then, oh, oh, wait, we can make choices about this right. as a group. Right. And we know we're strong there with each other. Right. I can help you with this. And we can decide we're not going to have meat for breakfast. Right. We're going to decide we're going to then march down. Because if that group of people, 25 people, I guarantee you, just the people over the weekend, or 50 people who might be in a play upstairs here at Wow House, marched into their state senate office, anyone, or even a senator's office, and demanded to be listened to, that would have changed. That would change policy. Yeah, a small group of people can change an enormous amount. And so, you know, I, that's what I believe in. We get sucked into that hole of guilt, um, and that's that's we can't do that. You know, and uh, because you know, there's this movie Cowspiracy that's out that's very mm, popular. I haven't seen it. And everything. Yeah. I've seen it. I really, really have a huge problem with it. Huh. Because first of all, there is no conspiracy. Right. Most environmentalists or vegetarians are close. Right. That's a ridiculous premise. But second of all, he starts the movie by saying, I tried to do everything about the climate. I took shorter showers. I biked to work. I changed all the light bulbs in my house. And he goes through like yeah. 20 different consumer habits. I, I, he I. leaves out political action. Right. So if you want to change the world, have a fucking party. Well, yeah. Get people together. Well, form a, a protest is a party. Right. A concert's a party. A ever, party you know is a party Solnit? is a thing that's a. You know, in a lot of ways, when we see entertainment on Broadway, we see a Disney play. That's not a play. That's not theater. It's right. entertainment. Right. A party is just the same thing. It's a community without a purpose. Right. Right. That's a good point. You know. Well, did you just coin that? I think that's so. That's a really good phrase. But, it, but, but if we were actually having a party with a purpose, yeah. like all weekend, it's right. a much better party. Right. It's a much deeper party. Right. You should have seen July 4th when 50 people at my house came together to build that first tiny house. We built the tiny house. We wanted to do it on July 4th because that was the day that Henry Thoreau stayed in his cabin for the uh, very first night. Walden. So it was going to yeah. be the Civil Disobedience Love Shack. You know, we're all going to build it together. <laughs> Civil we didn't make it. We tried shack. to build the whole thing in one week. Oh, shit. Well, one day. So we didn't make it. We built all the panels. We, we couldn't assemble them. The sun went down and we got too late. We yeah, couldn't do it. Yeah. But man, was the party after that thing was meaningful and beautiful That's and funny. amazing. And everybody was in the pond swimming and jumping out. That party lasted until 10 in the morning. Yeah. And it ended with an all-night dance party because we had meaningful action, political action, because also this was all these movement leaders, right, right. assembled at my house right. to discuss They're, what was next for the Bernie campaign and what's right. next for our revolution and what's next for all these things. However... That was a meaningful party, and you can totally tell the difference. You ever read Rebecca Solnit's work? Do you know what I'm talking about? She wrote a book. She's she's a well-known journalist, but she wrote a book called A Paradise Built in Hell, and it's about uh, disaster sociology, the study of how people behave have to read in disasters. It's fantastic. That's my whole film. Right. Well, I quoted a lot in this book that I just s submitted, right? Um, but yeah, D Paradise Built in Hell. It's really well done. And what she quotes this uh, the, the 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 like godfather of disaster sociology, the mm -hmm. guy who's like founded it, and he's the you know the best, the most knowledgeable guy. And he said, in the course of my career, what I've come to the conclusion that um, people in disasters almost always remember that as the best time in their lives. Sure. That's when they had meaning, that's when they had community, yeah. that's when they found love, that's when they, they got out of their own heads and were doing things for other people. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is, this whole book that I've written is, is a refutation of the Hobbesian view of human nature, mm -hmm. that, that we're, you know, just, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and we're man is a wolf Nasty to man. It's sure, fucking yeah. bullshit, it's all bullshit. And it's all this propaganda put into us, inserted into us at an early age 
to make mm -hmm. us distrustful, right. to make us docile and easy to control and all that, right? So uh, what he says is, I've come to the conclusion that daily life is the disaster. <laughs> and that a disaster is a door back into paradise. Well, that's beautiful. And if we recognize it as such, right? right. That's why I'm talking about, right? right? That's why the conversation in the cafe that has nothing to do with the Iraq war is only about the Iraq war. Right. And if we recognized it, we would stand up from the cafe and have a meeting and try at yeah. least, which is Occupy Sandy. Well, recognize Occupy there's Sandy a disaster happening. Occupy, Occupy, Occupy Sandy was 50,000 New Yorkers a day streaming in to do aid for the people who were flooded. And it was beautiful. It was yeah. built on real principles. It was mutual aid, not charity. Charity is rich people giving to poor people. Mutual aid is we're helping each other. Right. And they outperformed is. FEMA. They outperformed the state. They, out, they, 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 because yeah. they were, and they, you know, there was at one point they told me the story at Occupy Sandy, which was the Occupy movement retooled to become a disaster relief network. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that is how we, we can, in a crisis, sure, we can, there, we can have the worst elements of us come out. We can see the racist cops in New Orleans shooting black people on the bridge. We can see, um, you know, the desperation, the violence. We can see gangs did take over the evenings in the Rockaways. You know, Occupy was there in the day, but the gangs definitely ruled the night. Um, but there is exceptional human be behavior, and that's what we have to do, and that's what climate change is. Right. Climate change is, a cr this is the, what the film is about, how to let go of the world and love all the things climate can't change. Right. All the things climate can't change are our civic virtues, right. their community, their love, their resilience, their innovation, right. creativity, courage, uh, democracy, human rights. These are the things that we'll, we, the climate won't destroy. It might destroy New York City. It might actually, it might actually uh, make them better. Cultivate them. Uh, give them space well, to come out. That's what we're trying to encourage and right. say that you know right. this. This. I remember I was at Woodstock '94. <laughs> it was crazy. It was like it rained. It was mud everywhere. The best bands in the world are playing. I watched Peter Gabriel on Sunday morning. There was like 200 people there. I was like, really? Yeah, because everybody was sick and exhausted. Was it on the same farm? It was the last day. No, it was in Saugerties. It was oh. actually in the real Woodstock. And um, it was the 25th anniversary of the, real, of the first Woodstock, and I went to this. My brother was working at it. We were there for all four days. It was incredible. You know, the bands were playing Metallica, Violent, Violent Femmes, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Arrested Development, Peter Gabriel. These are some of the acts that I remember. Yeah. Um, and then and Aeros when Aerosmith was playing, there was like a, right before it had been a huge downpour. So there was a camp on a hill, and there was no way the fuck to get up the top of the camp, because the whole hill had just turned into a mudslide. <laughs> and I didn't really want to see Aerosmith. I'd just seen Metallica and Chili Peppers, and I was like satisfied. Yeah. So I was going back to my tent to kind of like, I don't know, do, go to sleep maybe. Um, and there was no way to get up to the hill. Sandy, do not turn off the recording. My cat is named Sandy. That's, uh, a, that's the real <laughs> disaster that's, cat. She, well, all my cats are named after um, climate change disasters. Uh, but that's another story. Um, I only have two. Sandy and Basra. Basra is Basra, named wow. Iraq. Wow. Basra likes to hide. He's not out now. Sandy's very, very in your face. Um, so... Uh, Going up to the camp. Uh, so somebody, leader, said, okay, I'm standing here. You stand right next to me. You get a foothold. You stand right next to me. And for 40 feet, 100 feet, they made a human chain. Oh, nice. Going all the way up the top of the hill. Nice. 
spontaneous organization. And then your job as the person trying to get up the hill was to grab that person on the wrist and literally pull yourself up person to person to person to person to person to person to person. Right. And I was in the middle there. And this lasted the entire Aerosmith set. Like you could hear love in an elevator going on and then people are like hand over hand pulling themselves up this mountain. Oh, so and cool. some of them slipped and slid and fell right back down. You right. Know? And, but this was this um, this was a visual metaphor of just like you're uh, you know they're, they're playing um, uh, walk this way and this is going on you know and they're far away they're like a like football field away you know yeah. but but that was the one of the best most meaningful memories of this entirely crazy corporate insane asylum that they had set up where everything that you couldn't bring food in but every beer was like ten dollars and uh, the line was like on. 25 minutes long and it was all miller it was all crap and the only thing you could eat was like their frozen pizza which was twenty dollars i mean it was awful but um the bands were amazing though but you know that's the, that's what i'm trying to say that in the crisis the and that's a tiny fake crisis nobody's going to die at in a mudslide at the Aerosmith concert, probably. But <laughs> it's a good the way same to go, thing comes man. out, though, in a war yeah. zone. The same thing comes yeah. out in a, um, in, in a, in a uh, and one of the things that we're doing, we're having a rally on Thursday night here in the Rockways, is we're encouraging people to sign up for this sort of burgeoning um, first response network that comes from within the communities. Because the protection and resilience and um, resource gathering from a community should be sourced within the community. Mm. It shouldn't be oh, here's FEMA coming in. Right. FEMA actually can't, or the National Guard had all this extra stuff, so they went to Occupy headquarters. And they were like, we want to help. We want, you to, we want to help you, and we want to distribute stuff. And they were like, okay, you got to go through the training. And they are like, well, we're the National Guard. We're pretty well trained. And they are like, no, 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 no. You have to go through our training. And they were like, they wouldn't let them do it until they went through the Occupy training, which was when you go up to somebody's house, you say, how are you doing? What do you need? Um, you know, is, do you have food? Are you cold? Like, and you treat them like a human being instead right. of dropping off a, a 24 pack of water and some, you know, right. sausage links and getting the hell out of there and you just tromp through their neighborhood with, you know, AR-15s or whatever. Right. Like this was real, this was about being sensitive right. and, and, and good to people. Did they do it? Need, yes. Oh, they went through they it? Did it? Yeah. Nice. Well, good for them. Yeah. That's cool. But that was an extraordinary moment in, in the history of climate change and disasters, um, uh, we really exhibited, I think as New Yorkers, an enormous amount of, of, of volunteerism and, and compassion and, and, uh, uh, and just giving aid to the already uh, overworked network of disaster relief uh, centers that are there right. to address poverty right. <laughs> and economic inequality. Right. So we're in on the Rockways where there was a group called the Action Center that's right. there to basically address the other full-time disasters, which is poverty. Right. Um, and racism. So, so where do you come down when, when someone says, uh, yeah, you know, every generation thinks the world is ending. Every generation's had their, you know, whatever, their, their crisis that they thought was unique to them. And this is just another, uh, just another iteration of that. Their world did end. Uh-huh. I mean. All worlds end. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, do you feel that there's something dies, unique about this? Dies. Do you feel that we're at a, a historical moment? I think that's those unique? worlds were unique too. All right, they're all unique, but I mean, okay, you know, do you the think book, this is the big one. Well, do you know the book uh, A Short History of Progress, Ronald Wright? 
I have heard of it. It's a great book. It, it, what he does is he looks at... You have at, all these great books I should read. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm you you, you do the same thing to me, dude. There's one on the table right there. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, he looks at every civilization, basically, that's ever existed. And he does what Joseph Campbell does for narrative. He shows how uh -huh. they're all the same. They all go through the same okay. stages, the same life cycle. And you can just watch everyone from Sum ancient Sumeria to Easter Island to the Aztecs wow. to whatever. And, you know, and he shows how they all go through the same thing and we're going through the same thing. Every civilization that's ever existed has collapsed. Everyone. Sure. The only thing that's different is this time it's global. It could be. This yeah. is the first global could civilization. Be, it may not be. And well, even if, it, if is, it does what every other one has done, there won't be anywhere to go. The body count on this is higher, though, for sure. And well, he says, he says every time history though, repeats right? itself, the it, price goes up. Well, there, that's true. And every, every century has been bloodier than the last. Yeah. And, well, there are more people to die. War, certainly in World War II and World War I, the horrors of those wars, we don't absorb on a daily basis. We don't think about this shit on a daily basis. I grew up thinking about them on a daily basis because I'm a, I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. Right. And that was the 70s. Eight, that was not that long after the war. Yeah. So my parents, my father was born in Kazakhstan, in Russia. He was born fleeing the war, you know. His, his uncle uh, watched his parents get shot and only survived because he spoke four languages and was seven years old and translated for the Nazis. Fuck. Um, you know, these stories were very much alive yeah. at our dinner table, and I, I credit them for a lot of the consciousness that I think I have about... Um, you know, that connected with what we talked about earlier about apartheid, right. and that definitely connected about fracking. Right. I can feel my grandparents saying, pay attention, this is something on the horizon. Right. It's coming. Because my grandfather, the story goes, only survived because he left at 11 o'clock at night and didn't wait until 7 o'clock the next morning when all the rest of his family tried to leave and they all died. So, so he got out just ahead of the Nazis. Well, right. So right. he something about the genetics he's passed on to me is looking at this from beforehand. Now, right. I don't know if that's true or if it's bullshit or whatever, right. but, I de but I definitely know that, you know, I think most of my work can be based on seeing something that's a glimmer on the horizon and then it's coming and then racing to see how can you meet it. Right. Because um, I saw the Iraq war coming when they started doing that PR in 2002. And I was looking yeah. at the New York Times. Do you see what's happening here? Right. Do you see that they're trying to promote this war against Saddam when he has nothing to do with this? And I would show it to the actors in the kitchen and say, do you see what's happening? This is going to be bad. Yeah. And you know, you, can, you know enough about history that you can, you can, I think, start to understand what's coming next, right? Um, and I worry that this century is going to be more bloody than the, than the previous one. And that, um, that because climate of war? Change, or because climate of change disaster. will cause resource wars. Yeah. Um, it already United has Nations, in Syria, right? That's a water war, essentially. It was a water war that was caused by the worst drought in the history of uh, the modern Syria. Yeah. And when the Assad regime um, gave out aid in uneven ways and, and farmers protested, uh, those protesters were tortured, right. and when those protesters were tortured, they put them in jail, and then they set off the civil war. Yes, it's a f second, probably, climate change civil war. It's, a lot of people say Sudan. I say in the film, mm -hmm. it's the first, so I was corrected. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the United Nations predicts, United Nations, this is not some radical left-wing yeah, think tank. Right. The United Nations pr predicts that when we hit two degrees of warming on the planet Earth, that will cause uh, enough migration to cause 800 million climate refugees. Right. Yeah, the, the fucking 800 the million. The Ganges is going to dry up. 
Well, the Ganges will dry, and the and the and the, a lot, and that will mean that a lot of the water to going to the front mainland China will dry, right. and it means um, New York City goes underwater, and so does Philly, Boston, D.C., Miami, Miami New Orleans, yeah. Oakland, Berkeley. Um, most of the audience for this podcast, I would imagine, <laughs> will have to move. Are going to be swamped. Um, but yeah. but 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 what that will create is a lot of violence and a lot of individual choices um, and a lot of group choices. I think that uh, you know there is an infrastructure in New York City of progressive behavior and values that did win the day when it came to Occupy Sandy and, and Sandy that did not win the day, for example, in New Orleans. Mm. The images from Hurricane Katrina are of those, the mayor, who was, I thought, quite brilliant during that crisis, um, Ray Nagin, who's now in prison for corruption. Um, mm -hmm. But I thought, you know, this, uh, this um, the images from Katrina, he said, go on the bridge, get out of town. And people, mostly poor, mostly black, um, from the inner city, got on the bridge to get the hell to safety, only to be met by the white suburban shotguns right. of the racist police force on the other side. Right. And many people were shot. And, you know, th at that point, that wasn't a climate change crisis. Right. That was a total break, the storm had passed. That was a total breakdown of human civic virtue, of American values, whatever you want to call it. Right. And what worries me is that situation being replicated True. everywhere you go, yeah. ad infinitum, right. add in a dozen, half a dozen Fukushima's. Because yeah. there are a dozen nuclear power plants yeah. up and down the East Coast in the floodplain, and um, it takes 20 to 30 years to decommission a nuclear power plant. Right. It's that radioactive, it's that hot, it takes that long to move that shit. Think about that, plus, think, I, I mean, people are relatively easy to move compared yeah. to an oil refinery right. or a uh, chemical plant, and they're all near the water. Yeah, you don't want that stuff ships. flushing right. in and, right. and contaminating the world's oceans. A single gas station, a single corner gas station, costs eight hundred thousand dollars to remediate. Like, yeah, move all that shit before it goes in the water, because otherwise you won't be able to go in the water ever again, or get right. anything out of the water ever right. again, right. and you'll have this giant toxic cesspool, you know, <laughs> which used to be the ocean. Right. Like, what kind of ramifications does that have? World hunger, people dying. Right. People scrambling for resources. Unfortunately, a lot of violence. And Bill McKibben, you know, people look at the map of New York City and they see the places that will go underwater and they see, oh, it's, oh well, I live in Park Slope. I'm up here on the hill. Yeah, like you're going to yeah. get away. Now, right. Now, like now. they have this escape right. fantasy. Well, the survivalists but with their, their guns. They also, like, come on, well, right. you know, I mean, they're, they're uh, <laughs> but what Bill McKibben says every single time um, it, to the question, well, where, where do I move? You know, he says the same thing every time. New Zealand. No, I'm kidding. He says, <laughs> he says, anywhere there's a strong community. Uh -huh. Anywhere there's a strong community, you have a better chance of survival. Right. So what does the climate movement have to do? Reinvest in this idea of community. Right. Why are we going to these communities and doing these rallies? To so talk about how do we build community. Occupy Sandy was a great example of how we inter... I'm not saying there wasn't violence. There was definitely violence. Uh, I'm not saying there wasn't chaos on the scale of Katrina. There was. Um, there were gangs that ruled the day. There was a lot of incredible, fucked up, violent shit that happened. There's nothing against the city of New Orleans. Um, 
you know, uh, but I do think that there's a political infrastructure in New Orleans which was poised to shoot black people on the bridge. Right. And in New York City, it's less popular. I'm not saying they don't do that here too. Right. Certainly, right. New York yeah. City police force has shown that they shoot innocent black people, and that's been true all over America. Some it's a deeply racist country, and yeah. it's a deeply racist problem of those institutions right now, I believe. Yeah. However, um, you know, there is a chance, if we follow a little bit of Occupy's example, that the values that were attacking the big banks and attacking economic inequality, and so politically active, a protest, and a sense of humor, and of giving those values are the right thing to employ when you're in a crisis, when the right. shit goes down. Right, because they're human values. They're truly human values, not what we're told are I human so. values, yeah. I can't let you go without asking what it's like to be at the Oscars. What the fuck <laughs> is that like? Well, okay, so I don't really talk about this very much, because it's, it's I really hope to go back, so I hope to have an update. Um, <laughs> so you want to talk shit you never about know. the experience? No, no, I would never. I mean, it's, it's, I still can't believe that that happened. So you're like, you, as a filmmaker, you get a tux. I grew up as a and kid it, and watching the heroes of the yeah. movies of the 70s. Yeah. The Oscars were real. Robert De Niro, Martin yeah. Scorsese, yeah. Francis Ford Coppola. There's a mystique about the Oscars right. and it's still there. Yeah. You know, when, when Leo won, he was he was great. He gave a great speech. He was a great act. He's a great actor. Right. You know when you see those performances, this is an enormous art form, and this is a very very high acknowledgement. Okay, Leo is Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo right. DiCaprio. And what did he win for? For Revenant. He was oh, great. oh, and, and, okay. And he gave yeah. a great yeah. speech about climate right. change. Right, right. And Sandy, don't stop the recording. She <laughs> loves like electronics. She, she like she'll pushing buttons. She likes pushing um, buttons. Oh my God! Do not mess this up, baby. Nah, she's just talk right. for like two she's hours. All right. Um, okay, sorry. Um, so you so get on my keyboard and like send out tweets and stuff. <laughs> um, so uh, okay, so you get the so first of all, um, we got on the short list. Right. So we knew that we had a you know chance of getting. The and this is after what did you win at Sundance? We won special jury prize at Sundance. Right. We were nominated for lots of awards. So you already time. knew like Gaston this was already really successful, and you were yeah, getting a lot of media. Yeah, it was hugely but nothing is quite like right. the Oscars. Right. I mean, you know, so yeah. we knew we were on the short list. Right. Which means there's 15 films on the short list for the Academy. I was in LA to be with my. Uh, I was doing a uh, master class at um, University of Southern California, so I was sleeping on my brother's couch. Um, and I was, I was, my brother had this nice couch. My brother lived in LA. He doesn't live there anymore. He was an act, he's an actor. Um, and so Alex uh, and I were hanging out, and Alex, uh, I was sleeping on his couch, and his couch was sort of weirdly uncomfortable, just like the back seat of my car was weirdly uncomfortable during the whole making of gaslight. And it had already been like a huge two year, three year journey, right? So I sort of scaled back in my mind to like, you know, I said, Josh, if you don't get nominated, it's, 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 it's not the end of the world. You're here, this couch feels just like when you're at the side of the road in New Mexico, mm. sleeping in the back of the Camry with the windows cracked, you know, trying to look for shooting stars. It's all been incredibly worth it, so don't be disappointed. But right. no, no, you cannot sleep. Because you know the announcement's coming at five in the morning, and <laughs> and you're gonna yeah. wake up, and yeah. So I woke up at four in the morning, walked all around West Hollywood, thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna didn't hear anything, we have a publicist, she's gonna call me right away. I'm out inside in front of my brother's apartment. Trish calls me, my producer, and she is sobbing uncontrollably. <laughs> she cannot speak. And I'm like, 
what is, is what? this happy what tears or sad tears? And she tears. was like, we got it. She says, we got it. And then I started sobbing uncontrollably. So then I walked into my brother and he just, he was like getting up for work and he was like, thumbs up, thumbs down. And I was like, thumbs up. And he gave me a big hug and we went to have breakfast. Um, but the thing about being at the Oscars, there are some unusual facts about being at the Oscars. One is that there is a cliff bar or a Luna bar taped underneath your chair. Because it's For so long. or something? Well, no, because the ceremony is so long. Right. And because no one has eaten in three That's weeks. Funny. You know That's funny. Right? Because they're all trying to buff up for the thing. It's oh, so funny. Um, and, you, and it's true. You can, you can be on a bathroom line, like, across from, like, you know, and there's, you know, Natalie Portman, Selma Hayek, Jennifer Lawrence, and Penelope Cruz waiting, waiting in line for the, for the bathroom. bathroom. And oh, you're just you're like, yeah. God damn, is that actually happening right yeah. now? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we knew we weren't going to win. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to win. Yeah. We knew that uh, the first time was very, very hard to win. And, and who were you up against again? Inside Job. Inside Job, which was a great film. Yeah, that one. Um, Charles Ferguson became a very good friend of mine, and uh, I love him. I love his work. Uh, he won. Um, he should have won for his last film. That's which was, which was No End in Sight about the Iraq War, oh, okay. I, which I like better than No End in Sight. Although I love No End in Sight, I mean uh, Inside uh, Job. Inside Job. Yeah. And so he had he had won all the awards. We knew he was going to win. Wasteland by Lucy Walker, which is a phenomenal film about um, garbage and garbage pickers in Brazil. Mm, I haven't uh, seen that. Um, Exit through the gift shop, which Great. is the Banksy documentary. The movie. Really interesting. Um, the sort of the is that guy real? Does that guy really exist? I think he does. Okay. And right. I mean, I don't really know. Um, yeah. He wasn't at the Oscars. Right. You know. Um, people, and, you uh, need to see these films, people. And uh, um, Restrepo, which right? Spoke Amazing. About this incredible yeah. Afghanistan yeah. Uh, war. I mean, bullets with by bunch your of head. Films. Unbelievable. And yeah. great group of people. Yeah. And it was really, the documentary community is incredibly supportive of each other. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, you have to be. Well, you got, by and large, rough... in the documentary world, there's no ego. Yeah. There's not a lot of money. It's not like people are making millions and millions of bucks. Right. People really know how to tell stories. They're dying to change the world. Right. And they're there to serve that it's purpose. passion, and meaning. I, 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 when yeah. I caught in a documentary, I actually really felt like I found my people. Right. Because I would work with actors who I love. Right. They weren't necessarily like politically motivated. They're right. motivated by their own internal sense of chaos. And right. I relate to that. Right. I love sure. that. Sure. But, you know, can't go out and talk about the IMF and debt restructuring right. all the right. time. But you could probably do that with most of the documentary crowd. <laughs> who yeah. wants to talk about that? I do. Yeah. So that's one thing about the Oscars. There's a cliff bar tape in your chair. So <laughs> when you get hungry about halfway through, um, that's one. Right. The second thing is there uh, uh, are seat fillers. Right. So you, when you pan out as the, um, um, you know, as the, um, the camera crew, right. there can't be empty seats right. at the Oscars when right. they pan across the crowd. So, so they employ, or maybe it's a volunteer job, yeah. all of these actors who are very attractive, who are dressed to the nines, who are dying for a chance to like somehow sit next to, you know, like yeah. Jeff Bridges. Right. You know. And um, and uh, it was very surreal when Matt Sanchez went to the bathroom and I came back and there was a very attractive woman sitting in the seat <laughs> that was You're next like, to me. Matt, and I looked nice and I, I turned to Matt and I said, Matt, and I said whoa. And I, I just, it wasn't a pickup line. It was just sort of funny. I said, well, you're much more attractive than the person who was just sitting here. <laughs> and, and she took one look at me, realized that I wasn't, you know, <laughs> Matt Damon, 
and then so turned right back to looking at the Oscars. Oh man! What's sad is that you kind of then you kick them out of yeah. your seat. Yeah. And they're heartbroken. They have to leave the Oscars for. <laughs> <laughs> to go to the this is my you big chance, and I got to sit next to this guy. <laughs> Out of work actors in yeah. LA who are doing this. So yeah. you know, it's what's really remarkable about this um, was that uh, when we were just at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, as Bernie delegates, there were quite a lot of pro-Hillary Clinton seat fillers, uh, and they were employed tactically, right. not as we want to make this shot. Well, it was all about the shot, of course, right. but it was also about making sure that it was really hard for Bernie people to find a place to leave. You go to the bathroom, you're not getting back in, right? So they just you fill in behind it. you, That's or you, you know, um, there was a lot of Michigas. Yeah. at DNC and uh, um, you know that really reminded me of the Oscars right because oh my god seat fillers where have I heard this term before right. well it's because um, yeah, of course it's a show what do they and say? the audience is the stage at the Oscars right so you can't have it looking bad you need bodies what's that line of politics is like Politics is, is Hollywood the for ugly wing people. Of the military industrial complex. Well, that's Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa. But I'm thinking that politics is Hollywood for ugly people. <laughs> <laughs> you know that one? <laughs> sort of the same thing. Oh my God. Um, well, you know, uh, I, I do think that. I think one of the things that we're trying to do, both yourself and myself, and a lot of this new moment in American culture, is to sort of burst that bubble which is all about appearances right you know which is to say right. these are the underpinnings let's look at history let's look at sociology let's look at anthropology let's look at our culture let's look at the things that we don't see that are outside the frame um, you know at the same time as we're indulging the most virulent narcissism we've ever done with the Facebook and right. all the social media right. and we're constantly looking at ourselves in pictures and all those kinds of things yeah. but I think I think that one of the, one of the mission that we have as a revolution um, is you know to redefine American culture and say these are the thing, these are the values that we want to distance ourselves from because we're in dire shape right now, yeah. politically speaking. Um, and you know, uh, uh, I think art and culture is a very, very important part of that. So you know, that's why I think continuing to make movies and continuing to make popular, popular works of art, not just works of art that are you know, deliberately avant-garde or philosophical, but to try to at least try to um, make something that a lot of people are going to see. And so, you know, that's why I was uh, extremely grateful to all the attention the Gasland got and Gasland too. And, you know, um, but I do think that there's a symbiosis there between a movement. I don't think Gasland would have been nominated for an Oscar if it hadn't been so popular with grassroots screenings and a movement that mm, built it. Right. I think that somehow that vibe caught on and went all the way up right. to Hollywood. Right. Because we had done hundreds of grassroots screenings by that point. Screenings with every mom and pop anti-fracking and environmental organization across America. Right. And we had gone to you know, dozens of states and built this, you know, this sense of uh, connection between people in PA and Wyoming and, and Los Angeles and um, Texas and uh, Colorado and Florida and everywhere in between that we were going to be fighting fracking. And that movement got to the documentary wing people could see that this is what was happening and that kind of aura around a film is often what gets them right. that kind of attention 
So I, d I don't think it was just about like, oh, this was a good movie and everybody liked it. No. No. It, it, it's, uh, it's that important. Oscar nomination belongs to every person in that movement. Yeah. That's the way I feel, and that's what we, we try to keep doing. Yeah. You know, but I do think it's it is important to have the glamorous part of life. You know, it's important. Yeah. It's important to have the the beautiful, the the you know the, those type of aesthetics, even if it is a fantasy, even if it is kind of make believe. It it does give this thing a, a sense of history and a sense of life about it. You know, um, but I think those two little details about the Oscars are people that you know, I could say a lot of the cliche things about how great. You know, Kirk Douglas' speech was, or whatever, which yeah. is true. Um, but uh, no, the the candy bar is a beautiful detail. Yeah, the, the, the people the don't know films. that if you're, yeah. unless you're there. Yeah, um, that's what it's about. And I hope I get back there. I'm going to take that Luna bar, <laughs> bronze. I'm going to eat that <laughs> right the when I'm shit out of that thing. <laughs> I might bring a couple extra. There you go, and yeah. some duct tape. All right, listen, uh, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change is available on iTunes. iTunes, as of Amazon, about a week HBO, ago. HBO Now. Yeah, and oh. where do you have a website where people can learn about you and your, well, your three, totality of what you're doing? We're trying to figure out how best to do this because International Wow, international wow Company or internationalwow.com is so old that we've right. never updated. That's all of my theater work from the, web, from the past. Right. You look there. But How to Let Go Movie.com is about the new film. Uh, the, the combined Gasland and Gasland Part 2 sites, which is GaslandTheMovie.com, is a huge wealth of information. Okay. Um, but we have a very vibrant Facebook page for Gasland. There's oh, 112, 120,000 people on it or something there's like that. There's a community. There's the Josh Fox page on Facebook, and there's my personal page on Facebook. Our Twitter, My Twitter handle is Josh Fox Film. Um, and we're doing a lot of viral videos these days. Right. Uh, these climate interruptions. I just saw one a few uh, minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're on now. This so look out for that, or, or type into your Facebook search engine, Josh Fox climate interruptions, and you'll get those. Um, but I mean, you know, uh, and hopefully there will be some action um, with the continuation of what's going on with the Bernie campaign, right. with our revolution. Uh, we're going to continue to do these rallies. So yes, go get the film in digital form. However. The best place to see this movie is with your community. Right. And we're doing the rally screening concert thing. Yeah, nice. So on the Rockaways, it's a rally. We have incredible speakers right. um, coming uh, from, from both from the community and both well, very well-known figures. Aria Doe from the Action Center. Sean King, a writer about Black Lives Matter of some uh, note and huge following. Um, um, you know, myself, the Reverend Lennox Yearwood from Hip Hop Caucus. Um, and then we have concert. Um, we have Kip Malone from uh, TV on the radio is going to play, the Chapin Sisters, Gabriel Mayers, uh, Tommy Sunshine, the incredible virtuoso DJ will play. And then we're going to show how to let go of the world and level of things climate can't change on the beach. Under nice. the stars. This is Thursday? Thursday. Well, it's well this will come out after that. This will come out after that. But yeah. we're doing this as a format. So we right. did it in Philadelphia. We had Shailene Woodley. So you're cool with other people doing a, like doing a festival thing, showing your film? Or? Oh, we, we love that. Okay. Grassroots screenings. Right. Uh, community screenings. Just right at our website, howtoletgomovie.com. Because I fucking up. hate it when people pass the book around. Yeah. Buy one copy and share it with all your friends. Not, what the we're fuck not, is we're not that? Like that. We're not like no, I'm joking. No, we want people I'm to joking. Show it I love it. Content. I love it. I know. Um, yeah. So like, so so we're doing a whole bunch more rallies. I think we have October 23rd in Los Angeles, October 26th in Las Vegas. Um, there's a whole series of them in PA, uh, in Philly, and in 
um, State College and in Pittsburgh. Nice. And this is all and on. And these are next week. And they and, will be. And these are all on. Just follow me on Twitter. On Twitter. Okay. And, and there's, right. uh, they're called the Climate Revolution is up to us. All right. So you can look up Climate Revolution as a hashtag. Um, find out about them. We're doing one in Cleveland. I believe it's on September 24th. So they're going to go all over the country. We hope to do more of them. Um, look out for those because those are transformational experiences. When you go to a rally, Naco Bear is playing at the one in Las it's Vegas. Better than a dead show, people. Yes, it, but this is the idea. It's like the Bernie Sanders rallies. Right. We're transforming. Right. We're, we're, we're kind of picking up where that left off. And maybe Bernie will come speak in one or two. Maybe get a magic bus, man. You know? I mean, I like the train. That's a whole nother <laughs> Get a magic train. Get a That's magic train. That's a whole train. nother podcast. Oh, right, right. Get a, get a biofuel-powered magic bus. Is, Amtrak is hardly slow, but that's also a benefit. Yeah. But yeah. I'm not going to talk too much about that because I don't want yeah. all crowded. That's another thing. All right, Josh Fox, thank you, man. Thank you. I know you're a busy man, and this is well, two valuable huge, hours out of your life. I'm a huge fan of what you're doing, as you know. Well, and you know, the my, whole thing. My next film is about monogamy and gentrification. Well, there you go. And, we, and hopefully you'll have a cameo in is it. Is it a porn-related porn, porn related cameo? No. Because I am an award-winning <laughs> porn star, you know. Well, you know, <laughs> no, I'm not. This ain't going to be rated G, but it's not a porn. But, uh, no, it's a drama about gentrification and, and, yeah. and family in New York City. Well, this, we'll leave that out This there. podcast is like as close as I get to your weekend party. So thank you for joining me. And, <laughs> thank you. And thank you for and sharing thanks, yourself. thanks, Sandy, for being such an a- active part yes, of Yes, good girl, Sandy. All right, All right thanks, thanks, brother. Chris.